Greetings, ladies and mentalgents, and welcome to the latest issue of the first 40,000 words. In this video, we'll be doing the web novel, A Journey of Black and Red, taken from the website Royal Road, with the synopsis as follows. Where am I? What is this? I, uh, I don't remember anything. Am I in chains? Why am I in chains, and why am I so very thirsty? With the tags... Action, adventure, fantasy, historical, female lead, urban fantasy, and villainous lead. Warning, this fiction contains gore, profanity, sexual content, and traumatizing content. Please note that this is also only the first 40,000 words. If this video garners enough attention, I will do a second one with the next 40,000 words. Let's say 5,000 views with 100 likes, and I will do the next 40,000 words. Anyways, I'm sure you're here for the story and not me. Please, if you are interested in the story, follow the link down below to the author. Or, if you wish to support the channel, there are links as well. And as always, I hope that you enjoy. And on to the story. Chapter 1. Cruel Genesis Where am I? I take a deep breath in, which promptly turns into a coughing fit as I spit uh, something on the ground. Ugh, disgusting. This is entirely too disgraceful. I hope that there is no one around to witness my shame. The thought is born and dies in an instant. I struggle to remain calm, but I can already feel the onset of panic. I smell dampness, old stones, and rust. This is not my bedroom, nor is it a hospital I would be sent to. What has happened? I am lost. The stone bricks I can see through the waterfall of blonde hair are oddly well-defined, as if the distance did not affect my sight. Darkness is now just deeper shade instead of an impenetrable veil. I can hear the individual sounds of dripping water and groaning wood with perfect clarity instead of his background noise. The air smells of dampness and iron, and the taste of my tongue is as cloying as it is distracting. Every sensation is magnified, and on each one catches my attention briefly before another one takes over in my disoriented dance. Soon, the sensory overload grows into a stabbing pain just behind my eyes. I feel sick. I need to understand. I take a stock of my situation and shiver in fright. My wrists are shackled. My legs are on the floor. My skin is scraped raw. I feel the coarse fabric of simple tunic on my shoulders and... Uh, oh, I'm not wearing any undergarments. Someone might have seen me without... Uh, I cannot bear the thought. I twist a bit and feel the wet hair plastered on my skull, falling to my shoulders to see my legs coming out in rough pieces of fabric. They are an even paler than usual and dotted with red spots, which I realize is blood, the very same blood I spat earlier. I breathe deeper to control my fear. I shall not break down. I shall not scream. I am no tender flower of the Charleston to faint at the mere sight of the crimson liquid. I am from sterner stock. My fear does not recede, yet I am once more in control of myself. I do not know exactly the predicament I find myself in, but I know that panic shall not help. I will not succumb to it. Wary, I continue my inspection. 
bare walls of the ubiquitous grey stone, and a single massive door with a barred window. Is this a farce? Am I in a dungeon? I must be dreaming. Yes, this is a dream, and I am still asleep. Or perhaps I'm quite mad, and this is the hospices I have heard so much about. And what is this? I'm wearing rags. Even slaves would not wear such things. I swear, I will get to the bottom of this. If my name isn't... uh, If my name isn't... um, I... I am... I cannot focus. My thoughts are a jumble of impressions and emotions, of needs that I do not understand. They slip away before I can grasp them fully. I shake my head and bite my lips to clear them. To no effect, nothing works. I cannot recall my name. I must recall my name. Unbidden, my mouth opens and a sound escapes. Ah, ah, Ariane. The pain. I bend forward as much as I can while my throat burns me. Soon. The agony extends to my stomach and tears form inside. My mind blanks from the sheer intensity. This is a hundred times worse than anything that I've ever felt. God, please make it stop. Make it stop. Someone. Anyone. And it seems someone listened to my prayer. I can hear the clang of the door open far in front of me. Three sets of footsteps approach. Faster, I beg of you. Told you I heard something. Sun just set, so it's possible. Hmm. Despite the lack of any light source, I can see with great clarity the face of my would-be savior. And now I know for sure that I am doomed. This man looks like a highwayman. Why, if I met him in the street, I would immediately flee and call for the nearest guard. He has unkempt black hair and a greasy beard that he must not have trimmed in months. Yet, even then, I could take him for a laborer, were it not for the pair of insane blue eyes that freeze my very soul. The man smiles and displays a full set of uneven teeth. How very chilling. And yet I know with certainty that this man could help me, were I not stopped by a strange feeling. This man already belongs to someone else, and I would be better off not touching him. I know I should be curious, but the pain is making me dizzy. The second man is not white. He is not unlike some of the laborers who helped dig the train tracks, with the same golden skin and slanted eyes. And yet, to compare them is to compare a Pomeranian with a wolf. His arms bulge with muscles, and his expression is fierce indeed. I can tell from his posture that he is a fencer or a pugilist of sorts. He moves with the grace of a predator, and once again a strange feeding washes over me. I know with a certainty that this man is dangerous beyond his appearance. He has a cold aura to him, and he cannot help me. The third man can... I feel joy and warmth fill my chest. Yes, this man is a captive like me, an adolescent with a lost look. He wears the clothes of a smith or perhaps a cooper, and a thin chain hangs from his neck. He can make the pain stop. I just know it in my heart. And so I move.
And I stop. I look in confusion at my stretched arms, but of course, said me, I'm still in chains. Hairy locks of a silvery metal join my wrists to the wall in two taut lines. I am trapped. Wow! She's a feisty one. Come on, give her the boy. The Asian man frowns. High eyes meet, and there is a hint of sympathy in the rugged features. He pushes the young man forward. My left hand brushes the boy's collar. Yes! Yes! Finally! I'm saved. I dragged my hero closer, and I breathe on his neck. Oh, this delicate bouquet, like an exquisite wine from a perfect year. So rich and intoxicating, I am losing my mind. My canines brush his skin, pierce the flesh. Something thick and sweet brushes my tongue. The world explodes in ecstasy. I have no words for an eternity. Nothing exists, nothing but heavenly pleasure that rolls and roils and boils and drowns. I die, I live again, and I die once more. The wave of felicity ravages my very being and shatters my psyche. If this is half as good as love-making, I understand women who find themselves with child out of wedlock. This is good enough to sell one soul for it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. I wish it never stopped. Alas, at some point, it does. I do not know how long it takes, but when the tide recedes, I know peace and certainty that all is right in the world. How peculiar. No amount of prayer has ever brought me to such heights. I am touching on the realm of the divine. I release the young man who flops on the ground. He can no longer help me, and worse, he smells terrible. The creepy man chuckles and drags at the adolescent's chain to pull him out by reach, as if I were an animal. How rude! I frown in disapproval. What? My voice croaks. What is the meaning of this? How I wish I could convey my outrage at being held like this. Not even a bucket of water or a chamber pot. Am I to live like a beast? I do not want to think about it. I do not want to think about the great many things. The smaller white man jumps in surprise and even the Asian guardian lifts an eyebrow. What is wrong with them? Did they expect me to cower too bag? Well, my lady, forgive the humble Boudouin. Huh? I did not expect you to be so. I huff with impatience and address his companion. How about you, warrior? Care to explain why I'm being held so? Al Boudouin seems flustered. This one seems barely amused. It is for your own safety. My safety. I will be secure when I'm unbound and at home. You rogue. What will it take for you to release me? Boudouin interrupts me, apparently miffed at being ignored. Don't worry, you cute little head lady. You'll be released soon enough. I, uh, I, um, I want to go on. I want to extract information from the reluctant duo, but I feel so tired, so very exhausted. Torpor invades my limbs and makes everything so heavy. My eyelids slide down with the weight of an executioner's axe.
It is summer in the plantation. Sugarcane is rising from the red earth, lush and green, as far as my eyes can see. The relentless sun beats down on my shoulders with a great weight that is almost physical. It would be unbearable but for the light breeze and the smell of the river. A massive blonde man kneels in front of me. His knife slashes into the flesh of the sugarcane until only a dripping silver remains. His face is rugged and red, and there are tangles of blonde beard. But I do not care. His shining blue eyes, which I inherited, look at me with all the warmth in the world. Try this, Monanga. I don't wanna. It's dirty. Try it to make Papa happier, Les. D'accord. I take it with a tiny hand and bring it to my lips. It is strangely fibrous and at the same time sweet and juicy. Hmm. See? Papa knows best. That's why you should have listened, Monanga. Hmm? I told you to always wear your hat outside because it is so hot when the sun is out. Did you listen? Oh, no, you didn't. And now you burn. Flames erupted from my flesh of my hand, and I scream and scream, and I try and stop them, but my other arm catches fire, and it spreads all over me. It hurts, it hurts so much. Blackened meat cracks to reveal tarnished bones. My hair combusts. Nothing stops the raging inferno. I beg the darkness to take me, and eventually it does. I awaken in the same grey cell. There are no signs of the captors or anyone else. I feel odd. There is a part of me that fights and rebels and tries to make me question my circumstances. I am aware that there have been inconsistencies in, well, everything. And yet, I find it hard to focus. Like a patient in a claw of a higher fever, my grasp on reality is tenuous and uncertain. No matter how hard I try to focus, I'm only afforded bits of lucidity. I remember a nightmare. I remember yesterday. I remember my name. What was it again? Arain. Yes, my name is Arain. Although I must, I must be honest and state that it's only a praenomen. Using my voice health, I shall endeavor to do so again. My name is Arain, and I... Um, nineteen. I am of age to be married. I have suitors, I think. I come from... Two city names come to mind. One is Baton Rouge, and it gives a hobby feeling. The other is New Orleans, and it feels more exciting, but also tainted. I cannot finish the sentence. I feel myself drifting into apathy, and I cannot let that happen. So I force myself to press on. I... I want... I have... Family. Yes, I know this is right. I try to recall the man from my dream. He smile and happy looks, but it is an image blurs and another one replaces it. The second man is terrifying. I remember a cruel smile and doll-like eyes that mirror a soul as black as the night. My musings stop when the same cravings come over me. My throat is parched. It is only natural as people need to drink quite a bit of water every day. I remember the stories of satyrs going mad when deprived of it. 
Their sanity robbed as they suffer surrounded by a liquid that they cannot ingest. I am sure someone will come. If they wanted me dead, it would have already happened. Time passes with an agonizing slowness. My thirst grows so much that I start moaning. My teeth bite painfully into an increasingly dry lips. The only saving grace is that after two days I haven't had to go to the ear. Well, this is embarrassing and weird. How come I have had no need to visit the... 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 The what? The distant clang interrupts my thoughts. Whatever they were, I have already forgotten. Three sets of footsteps again, and I wonder how I can tell with such accuracy. But, uh, well, it does not truly matter. They soon stop, and yesterday's Asian man gives me a passing glance before opening the door. He steps in and stands aside with the dignity of a British royal guard. The second visitor is a woman out of a fairy tale. Trudy, if anyone had described it to me, I would have called them a liar. And yet, here she stands. Tall and lithe, her slender body is clad in blue gown that would be the envy of King William's court. It suits her form perfectly and manages to be enticing without being vulgar, which, uh, given her silhouette, is quite an achievement. Her skin is as white as alabaster, and her face is the very image of grace and majesty. Black curls fall with restraint from her elaborate hairdo and encase two striking green eyes, bright as emeralds. Why, if my mouth were not so dry, I would have gawping like some country pumpkin right now. The same cold aura that encases the Asian man also comes from her, and yet I hesitate to compare them as she seems to be in a class of her own. If the man is a drum, this woman is an orchestra. The pressure it gives off terrifies me to my core, and I do not think of demanding anything of her would be a good idea. I turn to the last to enter a man, and I am immediately in love. He is tall and incredibly handsome, like the legendary king of old. Brown curls and brown hair adorn her skin, lightly kissed by the sun. His build is powerful, but it is not the solid weight of a farmer. It is the deadly grace of a judist. I feel like kneeling before Achilles or Romulus. Such is the presence of the man. I just know that he is the one for me. His aura is less cold and somehow familiar. So powerful and yet restrained. I bask in his presence as a strange warmth grows in my belly. Oh, shame. Am I to be swayed so easily by somebody I just met? I must not and... uh, Yet I know that if this man touches me, I will be undone. I forget my thirst, I forget my discomfort. If he takes me in his arms, I can die with no regrets. His spawn could communicate, Ogatai, and yet I blink and realize the noble lady is talking to the Asian man. Ogatai, apparently. What is most curious is that they do not speak English. This language of theirs is mostly sing-song vowels and soft consonants with the occasional glutteral sound. I'm sure that I've never heard anything quite like it, and yet I understand it. I assure you that she spoke, Lady Moore. 
I have a day dreamed again. This lack of attention is so taxing. And now my love must think me daft. I must give my best impression so that he becomes mine forever. I turn to him and use the lull in the conversation. Or should I say the harsh reprimand to address him? Greetings. All eyes fall on me. No, that is not quite right. If I speak English now, they will not think of me as worldly. Greetings, lady and gentlemen. My name is Ariane. May I ask yours? There, concise and polite. My voice cracked mid-sentence, and I'm filthy and dressed in rags that an orphanage would not take, but my manners remain impeccable. The woman scowls and displays such intense disgust, one would think I'm drenched in manure. Without a word, she turns around and leaves the room while covering her nose with a perfumed handkerchief. I would blush in shame and anger if it were not for the man. He kneels in front of me, and I lose myself in the intensity of his liquid eyes. He is smiling, he must be, he is proud of me, I think. No, he is smug. No, he is proud of me. He loves me and only wants what's best for me. I love him. I do not. I hurt me. I love him and he will be mine forever. The discomfort of the blanket settles on my mind until only adoration remains. I wait with bated breath for the sentence. A word, anything, until I can't any more. I move. Once more, the chains block me, my face only a few fingers away from the golden skin of his neck. I strain and stretch and the metal moans, but, uh, of course, I am too weak to break free. I am only human after all. I cannot bend metal. Can I? The man captures my attention, and the thirst fades away for a while. The fragrance of his perfume makes me dizzy and at the same time safe. I am here where I belong, by his side, yes, no, yes. He places a single finger under my chin to raise my head until our eyes are level. The touch of his skin sends tiny shivers down my back. You will address me as master. Yes, master. You will only speak when spoken to... I nod in silence, of course, I will do as he asks. You will obey the woman known as Jemina, and all things you will behave properly. Do so, and in three days you may draw our essence and live. I nod frantically. I want to say that I'll be good, but I hesitate to talk. The man is done and stands back up before turning to Ogatai. Oh, how I loved it when he was so close. It was everything I expected. It was everything that I could dream for. Why is my fledgling still in a drone cell, Warden? Okatai power is almost servile, which should be odd for such a man. And yet, how can I blame him? Who could stand before this man and call themselves his equal? Surely, even Alexander or Scipio Africanus would find themselves wanting... The man exits the cell without a look back. Why did he leave me so? I love him so much. Surely he must see it plainly. I am the one for him. Or am I simply not good enough? 
is a landed lady from Louisiana, perhaps too rustic for his tastes. Perhaps I should cut that green-eyed painted harlot and strangle her with her own entrails. Wait, what was I thinking again? I can hear the keening whine and soon realize that it is coming from my throat. Ugh, I need to get a hold of myself. What is wrong with me? The strange Asian man approaches me with a silver key. Oh yes, oh good time, he was here earlier. He is to take me out of the cell and, um, do what? Ah yes, I finally remember. I am Mocho Bay, the wonderful man. Oh, I love, no abomination, love, I remember his orders. I am to remain silent unless spoken to. I am to obey Jemina in all things, and I am to behave properly. I will do so, since he asked this of me, and he is so irresistible. I just hope that there will be something to drink. I am dying of thirst. Ah, I cry. The manacles drop to the ground with a surprisingly loud clang, and take with them a layer of skin. I look at my now free wrists. The horror! I'm flayed. The flesh is raw and thick with black blood. Convinced I am about to wretch, I move forward, and yet nothing happens. I do not feel nauseous at the sight of those unsightly wounds. They are most certainly infected, and will quite likely scar. Oh, the humanity! Shall I have to bear the stigma of my captivity for the rest of my life? Come out, slowly. I take a staggering step forward. I feel weak and light-headed. I pray they have water somewhere. End of chapter. Chapter 2. Jimena I seethe. The Asian man stares at me with a mixture of disgust and caution, and I cannot help but feel offended. Of course, I would not look proper dressed in rags and filthy like a coal merchant. The audacity of my captors is simply incredible. I finally leave myself to the sight of a short corridor of the same stone. A single torch provides enough illumination to see everything clearly, which surprises me a bit. The passage is dotted with what I believe to be murder holes, and how very quaint. I must have collapsed and been magically transported to some Scotsman Desma. Okotai locks the door behind me, and I move forward, quite eager to get away from the dreary place. As I'm about to reach the second door, the naked blade of a saber taps my shoulder. Hold! Move to the side! I turn around with outrage, although I remain silent. How dare he draw a blade on me? The master said that I had to obey Jimena, and he is not her. He has no right to give me orders. I will teach him the meaning of pain, and a hand grabs my raggedy shirt and propels me into the wall. He threw me like a doll. My back hits the rock and explodes in blinding pain. My head follows suit and my teeth rattle from the impact. Agony radiates in every bone, only exacerbating the discomfort I'm already in. His hand drills my chest in the wall. My bones creak and groan under his abuse. I frantically scratch in his arm so that he lets me go, but uh, I stop when I feel the metallic coal against my neck. 
I will have no attitude from you, fledgling. There is a red spot on his sleeve. It seems that I, in my panic, scratched him bloody. My nails are dark as black pearls and quite sharp to boot. When did that happen? The blade of his weapon leaves my neck and the tip buries under my chin until I start yelling. Oh God, what have I done to deserve such treatment? Why must they be so cruel? It hurts. Do I make myself clear? Yes, I whimper. How I hate to debase myself, but what can one do against such wanton brutality? Slowly, the man lets me go, although his blade remains drawn. I stay still and massage my poor chest. Terror starts screaming into my mind and awakens primal instincts. I want to run, but I cannot. The door is locked, and I do not even know where to go. Ogatai patiently works his set of keys, and I finally walk out into another stone tunnel. This one, however, is different. It appears that my jail is but one of many. Several blocks made with thick walls cover most of the area, lit by the occasional torch. Each cell has four walls and a passage that would allow the wardens to circle it completely. The murder holes, I notice, let visitors look inside the corridor and... I assume, shoot through them as well. I do not know what manner of beast is normally held here, but I would complain about being treated that way were it in my power to do so. The Asian man guides me through the labyrinth of passengers to the massive door made of the same silvery metal as my shackles. He pushes it open with little effort. How strong can this man be? I walk up the set of stairs to several landings with more doors, but Ogatai does not let me stop. Eventually, we cross one last metal gate and finally emerge into a proper building. And what a building it is. I want to take a deep breath and celebrate being out of the accursed hole in the ground. Yet, I find myself at a loss. Who? in their right mind would spend a fortune required for something like this. A hallway spreads to my right and left to the intersection and a dead end, respectively. Closed doors alternate with subdued alcoves supported by Doric columns. The ground is made of marble and the walls of pink granite. Tapestries and paintings hang everywhere, leaving an impression of a subdued elegance. Never in a thousand years would I suspect that such a place existed in the Americas. I believe that I would need to cross the Atlantic to Buckingham or Vassalus to find a match for this gaudy display. And the owners of this place have me at their mercy. I shiver once more. I thought that I'd seen wealth. How naive I was. These people are no rakes and outlaws out for a quick ransom and a ride west. Why, were I to escape and come across a lawman, who would believe me, a filthy waif or a masters of this place? My testimony would be the ramblings of a mad woman. What have I gotten myself into? The excitement offered me a moment of clarity, as if the external stimulus could fit a veil upon my mind, but soon enough, I found it hard to focus again. Why did I want to escape? I want to see that man again. It is my heart's fondest desire. Ogatai leads me up another set of stairs and down another corridor. 
we come across a man in a suit that would leave him drenched in sweat if he were to step outside, a pair of women in made outfits who exude a pleasant smell, and a slip of a girl in a white dress. Every time we pass someone, Ogatai holds my neck and forces my head down so that I cannot meet their eyes. Not that I need much encouragement. My embarrassment is reason enough. Finally, the warden leaves those endless alleys and forces me into a bedroom. Before I can even start to panic, he begs me to get cleaned and slams the door shut. Once again, I take stock. The room itself is rather small, which is only sensible as there is only so many of them. It is also lavishly decorated in shades of red and gold. Whoever designed the Baroque hallways clearly extended his influence on my new lodgings. The bed has four posters and takes the entire middle of the room with a writing desk and a chair lining the side wall. The living space is partitioned by white panels and I find a copper tub on the other side, as well as the enmities and another surprise. This place has running hot water. I prepare a bath and rid myself of that vile potato bag I was wearing to slide into the bath with a sigh of pleasure. I do not know if I should attribute how I feel to my previous ordeals or the state of my body, but the very act of washing myself was never been so pleasant. Water caresses my skin with its silky touch as the heat of the liquid seeps into me to my delight. I could almost forget how thirsty I am. Oh, how silly of me. There is now water to be found. What was I waiting for? I bring the warm liquid from the tap to my lips and take in a hasty gulp. And I know, without a doubt, unfortunately, it will not do. How strange. Is it a symptom of some disorder? Well, I'll think upon it later. When... Did my skin turn so white? Summer reached Louisiana a few weeks ago, and I remember a light but distinct tan. And yet now I look as pale as a canook. My nails are also black and quite sharp, which I cannot explain. One more mystery to add upon the pile. Or perhaps I should realize what I have become. I, why do I not feel hunger? Wait... There are more urgent matters to attend. I must be presentable. If that warden comes in while I'm still undressed, I shall surely die of embarrassment. There is only so much humiliation a proper lady can tolerate in a single day. I scrub myself vigorously and enjoy every moment of it. After drying myself, I find undergarments and a simple linen dress on the desk, which I promptly done. They do not fit me exactly, and are a bit tight around the waist, and uh, yet I find I care little. It feels so nice to be decent again, and the sensation of soft fabric on my skin is simply divine. I luxuriate in it until I am disturbed by an insistent knock. I open the door to see two men outside. Ogatai stares down at me without emotion. The other man is younger and dressed as a servant. My thirst surges at the scent of him. Such an intoxicating perfume. Before I can lean forward, Ogatai's hand grabs my neck once more. 
Ah, must this man irritate me so much? I want to glory him apart like the cur he is. Fledgling, I force myself to swallow. I do not want to repeat the cell scene. Those ruffians made it clear that they would resort to violence given the opportunity. Except that handsome gentleman, of course. You will cease when ordered. The servant looks at me with an undisguised fear. His chocolate eyes are fixed on my smile as he starts blabbering in some unknown language that I care not about. His attempt to retreat is stopped by the warden's steel grip on his neck and only serves to wet my maddening thirst. It bites into my chest and drills into my mind, demanding satisfaction. Nothing matters but the merciless craving. How peculiar the sight of a terrified man makes me, uh, giddy. And even more thirsty, this abduction has made me a monster. What? No, this ordeal has made me a little bit hysterical. Yes, just a little tense, nothing to it. I chuckle as I grab the man firmly between my arms, and then, as he vainly tries to push me away, I am still laughing when his eyes meet mine and grow unfocused. I sigh as I take in the musk of his terror with just a touch of desire. Scrumptious. I smile as the fangs puncture the skin on his neck, and I can finally, finally slake this godforsaken thirst. Rapture. Again, I am transported. I am ravished. I am undone. If there is one way to transcend time and space, this is it. No dervish and no prophet, no shaman and no mage will come close to this divine experience. Not with all the incense and prayers in the world. I love it. I love it. I love it. A piercing pain brings me back to the real world. The warden's clawed fingers dig into the muscles of my neck, forcing my jaw to open inch by inch. The young servant is dragged away, still mesmerized by God knows what. No! Fledgling! I swallow as the pain turns my vision white. I stop moving. This is just too much. You will lick the wound closed. Do it now. With the tip of my tongue, I manage to clean the precious nectar from the young man's skin, even as the trickle stops. I waste not a drop. Eventually, Ogatai pulls him away further, and he collapses against the wall in a daze. The expression on his face is content, for some unknown reason. I, however, am not. I need much more. Ah! I cry. Ogatai's hand does not relent. His other arm, now free, forces my own back and lock behind my back. I arch myself to prevent the agony from becoming too much. I barely struggle against his hold. My frustration is no match for the constant pain at the prospect of dislocation. The horrible thirst finally abates. It retreats into the recesses of my mind like a wary tiger, pacified, but not gone. I am myself again. Wait, what just occurred? I, I cannot recall. Something to do with nourishment. Ogatai pushes me away and I fall on the bed. With a yelp and a scramble, I'm upright again. I am not so innocent as to not understand the implications of being in a bedroom with a man and the warden makes me wary. 
Fortunately, my apprehension was unfounded this time. Ogotai bends to the servant to, I assume, check on his well-being. Apparently, satisfied, he stands back up and bids me to follow him. We leave the room, and I do my best to keep up with the tall stranger. Torpor once more makes my limbs heavy and my mind weary, yet I refuse to yield. We descend back into what I assume is the ground floor, and shortly reach a thick set of gates made out of the essence of wood that I do not recognize. Ogata opens one with ease and shoves me in. The room I find myself in is, uh, without a doubt, a training room. It is an extremely wide rectangle surrounded by an unadorned wall of grey stone. Racks of weapons line my left, targets my right, and the far wall is adorned with benches. I'm surprised to see that the ground is stone covered by a layer of sand, reminding me of the illustrations of the Colosseum that I once saw in a book. Why, if a lion and a gladiator were to strut in and sound of brass horns, I wouldn't even bat an eye. The only person present besides us is a woman with the black curls tied in a bun. I cannot decide whether she shocks me or impresses me more. Her face is handsome rather than beautiful due to an unfortunately squarish jaw, and yet she exudes an aura of gentle grace that is enhanced by the scandalously fitting leather armor. Her appearance makes me once again question my sanity. I know that Napoleon's cuirassiers would ride into battle with steel breastplates, but she looks more like a poacher than a soldier, and... Besides, the gentler sex should not dress so. It is just not proper. She ignores us as we approach until there can be no doubt that we came to address her. With a frown, she sheaths her blade and has been cleaning and turns to us. Her cold aura is strong as Ogotai's, yet more refined, and I believe she is one of them. I mean, I believe it is a source of her self-confidence. Is she an Amazon to stand here before that man without fear? I surmise that some horrible accident befell me, and I am now in the thrall of some potent concoction that causes me to hallucinate. Squire, courtier, he replies with a sneer. There is a flash of anger on Ogotai's twisted face, quickly hidden. You are to induct this fledgling while her master attends to an important matter of the conclave. What kind of master would bring a fledgling here? Is she so flawed that she cannot be left unattended? You may relay your concerns to Lord Narari. I am sure that he will be delighted to hear your objections, squire. The order is passed. I bid you farewell. And with this, Ogotai turns around and leaves us both stranded. I harbor some hope that this person would take pity in my plight, but those expectations are too soon dashed. The disgust on her face reminds me of Lady Moore's, only hers is laced with fury. I instinctively take a step back. A sense of danger dissipates as my lethargy, and I realize that the warden set the stage masterfully so that there is no chance that I would find a friend here. I still do not understand what is happening. My mind is barely working. I am a woman playing an intricate card game without having been taught the rules, and I am even forbidden from asking for help. The woman seems to resolve herself to the situation and gestures me to join her next to the rack. 
I gaze at rows upon rows of medieval weapons, including some that must have come from a barbarian kingdoms. Never have I laid eyes on so many bladed, pointy, and blunt instruments coming in all shapes and sizes. One is just a chain with a blade at the end, and I simply cannot fathom how that could be a sensible weapon. We both stop, and she looks at me expectantly. I have no idea what to do. Does she expect me to pick a weapon myself? Well... I feel panic rising in my chest, eager to not displease the Harridan. I desperately look for something to defend myself with, and I find it. I grab it, and I hold it protectively before me. That is a shield. I nod in approval. Obviously it is. Are you provoking me, Fredlingling? Can you even talk? Yes. Sorry, yes, yes, I can talk, and no, I- I'm not trying to provoke you. And what, Raytal, can you wield? I do not remember much, but I do know for sure that my uh, father, yes, my father, whose very face I cannot recall, would have never allowed me to take up fencing. Wielding a blade is so unladylike. Louisiana is already a dumping ground for France's debtors, strumpets, and scoundrels. There is no need for us landowners to act as savages as well. With that said, I did hunt for fur and meat, and there are enough escaped slaves to make leaving the plantation without a weapon a foolish endeavor. I am good shot with a flintlock rifle. The woman's face turns into a mask of rage. She grabs me by the collar and, in a seamless gesture, throws me across the room. My mind blanks. The world turns and twists before my eyes. I land painfully on my shoulder, and still I slide on the ground. Eventually, I stop against a machine. A second later, I hear the crash of my shield against a distant wall. Pain steals my breath away. I cannot think. It. I do not know how much time I spend there, sobbing hunched on myself. Everything hurts. I am so tired. I am so thirsty. Why? 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 Something cold pokes my ribs painfully. I open my eyes to see the evil hag looking down. She uses a dull training sword as a poker. Oh, why? Why must she be so cruel? Well, Fletchling, let me see you file that rifle of yours. I, what are you waiting for? And she stabs me. The tip of the sword pierces into my chest. Not enough to kill me, but enough to hurt. This new agony only adds to an old one that I go over the edge. I cannot do this anymore. Their cruel games, their pointless aggression, their cold demeanor. I did not ask to be ridiculed and humiliated at every turn. Abused. Tortured, and for what? What sinister game are they all playing that they do not deem me even worthy of knowing the rules? I just want it to be over. I just want to die. Papa, please come and save me. I can't take this anymore. And so I bawl like a baby. Sobs rack my body and tears stream down my face. I wait for the armored Hellion to continue her abuse, crying all the while, and yet it does not come. A pair of hands pick me up gently and sets me against a stupid mannequin. 
I keep my eyes closed in terror. A finger brushes my chin and holds my face up. After a few seconds, I dare open my eyes. The woman's face is frighteningly close to mine. She stares at my cheeks with wonder. Fletchling, I have a request. Huh? Can I please lick your tears? What? Is this woman entirely insane? This request is completely senseless. And yet there is suddenly a longing on her face so powerful and so pure that my breath catches my chest. Please, please, I beg you. My instincts tell me that she speaks the truth. As unlikely as it seems, it is all so very surreal that I find myself speechless. Is this the same person who tossed me across the room like a rag doll? I must decide, and against my better judgment, I agree. I close my eyes as she slowly leans forward. A cold slip moves across my skin, and I force myself not to yelp. This new sensation is so strange, and yet so intimate I dare not move. The cold tongue traces the other side of my face. Immediately, I hear a gasp and a sob. I open my eyes once more to witness a spectacle that defies common sense. The woman, whose posture had been so flawless before, is now sobbing before me. A pink tinge colors her, and as I watch, she slowly collapses forward. A protective impulse guides my left hand to the back of her head, and I pat it in a soothing gesture. Her black curls are the softest thing that I have ever touched. She tenses at first, but soon she leans into my gesture, and for a moment, we just lie there. My pain fades away quickly. Was I wounded? No, no, probably not. I let my arm fall. This feels so delightful. I believe I may just fall asleep right now. I blink. I feel the Amazon is looking at me with a usual frigid mask. Have I dreamt the whole encounter? Surely not. Why? Her skin is still rosy. Fledgling. I gulp in fear. Do you know who I am? I shake my head, too scared to cause another bout of mindless rage. I am Jemena, squire of the clan Cadders, and quartermaster of this underkeep. And you understand anything I said? Yes, Jemena. She sighs and pinches the bridge of her nose. How old are you exactly? I am nineteen, she prowls. I had not heard of Lord Narari siring a fletchling, especially not one that could talk. What has he told you then? Who? Lord Narari, your master. I, I do not know that man. What do you mean? You are his. I saw your fangs. I suddenly gaped at the woman. Fangs? Master, am I dealing with a raving lunatic? Unless... No. Mena looks at me in utter disbelief. Did you happen to meet a tall man with brown eyes and brown hair recently? Dark and imposing... And incredibly handsome, I reply in a dreamy voice. Yes, and he did tell me to call him Master. Is his name Narari? Yes, and when exactly did you see him first? Why, this very morning in my cell. Jimena appears increasingly agitated, and I still cannot say whether I'm mad or she is. At the very least, I learnt that the name of my killer... My master, Rari, such an exotic name. Perhaps one day it can be mine as well. Bledgling, hmm? I need you to tell me the truth. Oh, I will. The master told me to obey you in all things. 
I see. Well, please to tell, it's your earliest memory of the very same cell. Yes. Oh, my God. I cough. My throat suddenly obstructed. Jimena winces in sympathy. Yes, I woke up there yesterday. Or, uh, at least, I think it was yesterday. It is hard to tell with the passing of time without the sun or the clock. Yesterday. Yesterday? Yes. And you feel as if your mind fails you, as if your memories were hidden behind a veil. Yes. Finally, someone who understands my plight. Oh, I could cry in relief. Instead of answers, Jimena stands there and starts pacing. Is it some sort of affliction? Yes. Yes, it is. You will also notice the paleness, the sharp nails, and uh, the thirst. Does it get better? Jimena stops pacing and stares into the distance. No, 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 it does not. I wait patiently for her to elaborate. I can learn more about my circumstances from her, provided I do not agitate her further. I hope she hurries as I find myself more and more eager to return to my bedroom. Perhaps there I shall find something to drink. What is your name? Do you remember? Yes, Rain. Well, Matarain, has Lord Arari mentioned a ceremony? He said that if I do well, I may draw his essence in three days and live. Jemena mutters to herself, and I unfortunately manage to hear what she says. The woman can swear like a sailor. Well, young Arain, you find yourself in a delicate situation. However, you gave me something quite rare, and something that can only be gifted, not taken. Powerful emotions are such a precious thing. For that, I am grateful and shall endeavor to assist you. She helps me up. You are afflicted, yes, and I am sorry to say that there is no cure. What? I... I've never heard of such a disease, and... Is that why I am your captive, because of this condition? Indeed. You may consider the veil over your mind as a sort of anesthetic that'll shield it during the transition. But I don't want to... Shh, she says. It's a terrible thing. I know that you are still a rain. Always remember that you are still your own. Yes, I am a rain. I am my own. I stagger forward. Ah! He must be exhausted. Rest on my shoulder that I might guide you to your room. End of chapter. Chapter 3. False Heaven. My breast rend locks arms with me and we walk the streets of New Orleans. Already the sun creeps past the horizon and the dying light paints the cobblestones red. How daring we are, two young women out with no chaperones. It is so good that you came, Amiga, for alone I would have never dared. Think nothing of it, Costanza. I have a good reason to attend this ball as well. It is said that Lady La Magna opened up a distillery in Haiti and has an eye for business. It is truly fortuitous that she is there tonight, and I would be unwise to miss such an occasion. Blonde locks brush my shoulder, and I find myself staring in a pair of laughing chestnut eyes. Ah, my poor Ariane, it is always business with you. You should keep an eye open for a husband instead. Then he can open that distillery you crave while we spend our days in merriment. Psst, letitious woman, you shall not tempt me so. And besides, men cannot be trusted. Even Papa says so. Hey, Amiga, your papa is not here tonight, 
And, Trudy, I understand now that I have to find you a suitor that is more mature kind. Whatever do you mean? <laughs> Fret not, amiga. And look, he's the new contender. I follow my best friend's direction to the entrance of the mansa, only to recoil in terror. In front of the double door stands a monster of the grisliest tale. It stands taller than any man, its skin as white as the moon, and it is completely hairless. Eyes are the color of a pistol drilled into my soul. I want to run, I run, but I am paralyzed. My best friend holds my arm in a death grip, and deep gash mars her pretty face, and her eyes intake on a mad glint. No! Do not leave! He is the one just for you. A perfect match for one who tries to reach above a station. I cannot move. I cannot even blink. I am forced to watch as the monster steps closer. It grabs my head and exposes my throat. The last thing I see are eight merciless fangs. I wake up in a bedroom that is not my own. Memories slowly coming back to me and I find myself in turmoil. I have some hope now that I have found an ally in Jimena, and yet I have little doubt that she speaks the truth. I am indeed afflicted by some unknown condition. The realization almost crushes my spirit, and for a while I sit under the velvet canopy, too stunned to move. It does not last long, though, as Jemina bids me to join her, and I must obey. I stand and make myself ready. The ill-fitting dress I wore yesterday is still clinging to my body. A few drops of blood have stained the front and back, yet I do not recall being wounded. Curious. This specific guest room is similarly equipped as the previous one, so I quickly take another bath after making sure the door is locked. It takes all my willpower to not luxuriate in the sensual feeling of the warm water on my skin, despite how thirsty I am. After drying, I find that someone has left a strange-looking grey ensemble by the entrance. I put it on. To my surprise, it is extremely comfortable, with the notable exception of around my... Mm, posterior, which is too tight. Nevertheless, it does not limit my range of movements in any way. Oh, what a great find! Oh... If only I could wear this in polite society, but it has trousers, and this simply will not do. Difficulty strikes when I try and sort out the bird's nest my hair has become. There is not a mirror in sight. How do they expect a lady to show her best without a mirror to attend to herself, I wonder? Does Lady Moore? Oh, she probably has servants of some sort. Fortunately, my hair is easily parting under my talons, fingers, and I believe that I am at least somewhat presentable. They do not expect me to appear in polite society in any case. With everything done, I leave. Fortunately, it does not take me long to find the training room. I take the stairs down and wander a bit until I find the double doors. During this, I only come across one maid who avoids my eyes as each rushes by. She has an enticing scent, but I do not let that distract me. I have, after all, expected. I only hope that Jimena has something to drink. The thirst is kidding me. I find her at the table, cleaning an elaborate fencing foil. Next to her is a short and stocky woman in a peasant's dress. She has a short black hair and stares at me with a frown and worried black eyes. 
As I come closer, I realize she smells divine. I, I cannot stop myself. Jimena halts me with a hand on my shoulder. Oh, sorry, where are my manners? Good morning, Jimena, and you as well, madame. Hmm, isn't morning, isn't it? Jimena returns my greeting with a nod and a smile. Not quite, Mrs. Ainsa. She is a retainer for the Caddis clan. Oh, greetings, Ainsa. The woman does not answer. Instead, she nervously swallows, and I find myself fascinated by the movement of her neck. Such a pretty neck, so very fetching. Arain, hmm, I need your attention. Look at me. I turn to her and realize that she is much closer than I am comfortable with. She takes my hands in hers, her skin is soft and cool. Do you want to get closer to Ainsa? Yes. Are you feeling thirsty? Yes, quite so. It's almost unbearable. Close your eyes. Good. Now I want you to think about a place where you are safe. The safest place you know. But I do not remember my past. Your mind does not, but your heart can. Do you remember what I told you yesterday? I am mine, and I will always be mine. Good. Let your heart speak, Arain. You are safe. You can see around you. What do you see? I... I, I don't know. I'm, I'm so very thirsty. I just, just need a few drops from... No. Stop. Good. It'll work better because you're thirsty. Now try again. At first, I find the entire exercise silly. Why, it feels like one of these hogwash meditation exercises those charlatans claim can cure blindness. Jimena, however, does not relent. She guides me with a soothing voice. When the thirst becomes too much, she grabs my neck in a firm hole, and it helps me remain in control. Eventually, I feel it. On the edge of the sugarcane field stands a log cabin. It is barely large enough for a single bed and a chest and a small fire pit. It was never meant to be lived in. It is merely a shelter, unadorned and unpolished. The only thing that matters is that it is safe. I drag myself up on the straw mattress. It smells like soap and sunshine, and I know I can wait here for him to return. A cool wind rustles the trees outside and carries the smell of rain and fresh soil. Now that the weather is better, he will come back shortly and hopefully bring me something to drink. In the meanwhile, I'll just hug Mr. Scruffy Bear. Mr. Scruffy Bear is such a gentleman. Good. Now does it not smell so nice? Yes. Good. Now lick it. I lick something exquisite. It must be the world's very best bonbon. Someone moans in pleasure, and I know I should be shocked, but cannot make myself care. Good. It'll turn the pain to pleasure. And now, just follow your instincts. I bite down delicately. Something soft and warm parts under my teeth and like the sweetest of fruits. And once again, the delicious nectar comes to sate my thirst. Rapture. It's so good, so very good, and yet it feels duller. Somehow it does not compare to before. There is a petition between the feeding and me. I'm enjoying myself, but part of me is also sits in the bed of my cabin with Mr. Scruffy Bear. Slow down and listen. I can hear mostly two things. The first is the woman moaning shamefully. I'm not too naive to not understand that she is, huh, 
I cannot even make myself finish that thought. The second is a heartbeat, and it has been beating increasingly faster. The heartbeat is too fast. When it is so, you must stop. So stop now. I do so immediately. The thirst has abated enough that the urge is no longer so pressing. I also remember my master's instructions. I must obey Jimena in all things. Excellent. Now lick the wound clean. I do so. I go overcome by feeling of strong intimacy, and where it was not my strange state, I believe that I would be blushing. A moment later, I open my eyes. Jemena is holding Ainsa in a princess carry. I do not mention how inappropriate this all is, not to mention that Ainsa has rosy cheeks. Why, if someone were to come in right now, I would surely die of embarrassment. Arrain, hmm, yes? Do you know what just happened? Hmm, you told me to find a safe place, which I did. And then, um, I frowned in confusion. What happened then? Cannot seem to recall. I do not remember. Is it this accursed affliction? Yes, don't worry about it. The veil on your mind will be lifted when you next meet your master. Also, he said, Oh, this cannot come soon enough. I reply in a dreamy voice. Before I can embarrass myself further, Jimena turns around and, with a sad smile, You should not be too hasty. Not all knowledge is good to take. I am not good at this. Stay here while I bring Ainsa to her safety. As you wait, I want you to remember that safe place you found. When you suffer from thirst or when you quench it, you may find it again. This is important terrain, if you must remember but one thing. Remember this. I understand, good. Jemena leaves and I am left alone. I can already feel that the call of torpor, even though I must have awakened not an hour ago. To distract myself, I inspect the training dummies. I am simply astonished when I realize that some of those are automatons. How wealthy must these lords and ladies be, that they can afford such intricate machinery for such a trivial task? I can only assume that they are from Europe, for jewels are still away resolved to disputes amongst nobles. My musings are interrupted by the sound of a door opening and closing behind me. I turn from my inspection to greet the returning Jimena, and instead recoil in surprise. There are two new people in the room, only a few steps from me, and I have never seen them in my life. How can they already be so close? It's impossible, unless um, I blink. What was I thinking? It matters not. There are people in front of me, and I haven't greeted them yet. I curtsy, even though I do not wear a dress. Master told me to stop running, to behave, and I shall do so. And I wait. The woman on the left is wearing a richly embroidered cream gown with green eyes and shockingly red hair. She is extremely beautiful, and both her aura and her posture remind me of Lady Moore. A younger Lady Moore, at least. Perhaps a relative. The black-haired man on the right is dressed in an assorted cream jacket that went out of fashion a century ago, and yet I would never call him on it. With a chiseled jaw and a handsome face, he would be at home in a Shakespearean actor in the fanciest theatres in London. His own aurora is blander, yet similar to that of his companion. While she is sneering, he appears to be the victim of the most dire form of boredom. 
His blue eyes dismiss me almost immediately. I have not grown to age of nineteen without learning how to spot trouble. Whatever they want, I must delay it until Jimena returns without drawing their ire. And so I remain silent. Time is on my side, and the newcomers know it too. The woman sneers, turns into a skull, at the first round goes to me. We came to see the latest sport, Dalby sport. Do you even speak? Jemena, I beseech you, wherever you are, come back with all haste. Are you referring to me? Obviously. Who else do you see in this pathetic hovel? I must thread the needle of aggression and passivity. To meek and she will escalate, to witty and she will retaliate. I let silence draw as long as I dare before continuing. In case you are still waiting for my answer, yes, I can speak. Is that so surprising? It is. Lord Narari seldom chooses them sharp, you see. He prefers to go for uh, other attributes. What is it with everyone expecting me to be a simpleton? Although this time he may have made an exception, she says, eyeing me critically. Does she expect me to lose my composure so easily? Are you perhaps related to Lady Moore? It appears that I hit the mark. Her face freezes and her eyes turn calculating. That man's head turns to the door and he voices a warning. Medicine, she continues, unfazed. And why do you believe that? You have all the bark, but none of the class. <laughs> I could not resist. <laughs> Oops. You dare! She was just waiting for an excuse. She moves. And I can see it. Something sings in my veins like the leftover of a good dream. And so I move as well. I go to grab her backhand and manage to catch her first. This was a terrible idea. She is not quite fast, but the strength behind her strike is unthinkable. I am launched through the air as if weighted nothing. By chance, I manage to roll on the ground without hurting myself too much. Her power is truly inhuman. If her backhand had landed, I would have had to collect my molars from the farthest door. How can a slip of a girl, a girl like her... Wait, wait, what, what was I thinking? I, I do not know. I, I know, however, that I am in danger. I grunt and pull myself to my knees, and somehow ended up between those two automatons... Time is short, Medicine, says the man, as impassive as ever. Medicine strides towards me, wearing on her face the promise of pain. The urgency must come from Jimena's imminent return. Therefore, I only need to stall for a few moments. I am, however, spent. This affliction has sapped me of my strength. My limbs are heavier than they were a minute ago. I will not be able to fight her. I will not be able to escape. In desperation, I do something that I can only attribute to my adult mind. I catch the side of the nearest automaton and pull its lever. At best, I was expecting the dummy to rotate and buy me a few moments. Instead, the unthinkable happens. A complex imprint flashes on the automaton's chest and it basks it in crimson. It shudders and steps down from its wooden support, and then it stretches four arms ending in wicked blades. Its eyeless head finds the closest moving target, Melison, and I'm too stunned to move. Sorcery! Sorcery of the vilest of sorts! I barely notice the man putting his astonished companion behind himself, when a voice sweeps the room in one mighty roar. 
Hold! Jemena walks in with the confidence of a lioness. Her eyes find the dummy, which moved a bit forward for some reason, and then settles on medicine with an amused sneer. It is good to see Clan Lancaster attempt to remedy the abysmal lack of martial prowess. With that said, you could have just asked me instead of scurrying around on the proving grounds like rats. Watch your mouth, squire. I jump as both doors shut without any visible intervention. You should take your own advice. A heavy silence falls in the room as Jimena closes the distance with the two outsiders. Before she can reach them, the man takes a step forward and offers a formal bow. Squire Jimena, it appears that we have come here by mistake. Perhaps you would consent to open the door. Jimena stops and considers for a while. You will leave the Frenchling alone while she is in my care. Very well. Is that all? After all of this, they are free to leave. We should cut their legs and the knees and make them crawl on the stumps. No, it is a perfectly reasonable outcome of this farce, and I am delighted to see the back of them. They leave without a word. I suppose I should start to train you to defend yourself, the woman sighs after the gates close. With all due respect, Jimena, I think not. I respectfully disagree. I need to understand who these people are and the reason for their animosity. Why, when we first met, were you not goaded into attacking me by Ogatai? Jimena flinches. You are correct, young Arane. But I am bad at this. Where should I even begin? You could start by telling me why I'm a fledgling and you a squire, and why does Lady Moore despise me so? Jimena stops to consider and then quickly nods assent. Very well, but please bear in mind that I will remain intentionally vague, lest your mind obfuscate some of the information. I assumed that I would be unable to learn more about the affliction until I meet my master once more. Indeed, now to begin, newly turned up, afflicted, start off as drones. They are mindless and pitiful creatures who only react to obey their master's voice. Most remain in that state for a few weeks at most. Others never move past it. I shiver in disgust. What a dreadful fate. When the drones recover enough to sense of self, they receive... <clears throat> their master assists them, and they become fledglings, as you are. A fledgling is essentially a young afflicted. Jimena, my dear, as you are not mistaken, I have not yet received that help that you mentioned. Am I still a drone? Yes, and no. Someone who has reconstituted a sense of self is always treated as a fledgling, receiving help as but a formality. What if no, Arane, you do not think of it. Your master will assist you when the time has come. He told me to behave and I did not roll over and bend to Lancaster curse. Worry not, Arane. Thank you, Jimena. She graces me with one of her rare smiles. Ah, what a refreshing young lady. But let us continue. Once a fledgling is deemed an adult, after a few de- uh, after some time... Jimena almost say decades. Surely my years must have deceived me. I would not want to wait until my hair grows gray to emancipate. Not that it matters. As soon as I may, I shall go home. They become courtiers. This title is earned by the grace of their clan and the university recognized by others. Those two from before, Millicent and Lambert, are courtiers. Those who... Uh, they master their affliction, become masters. 
Masters do not need the recognition of the clan. Their rank is obvious. Masters who control the territory are often called lords. Above them are clan sovereigns and their councils, and we will address this later. What about squires? Ah, yes. Knights are a military arms of the clans. They are trained and deployed by separate order and enjoy some measure of autonomy. Squires are knights in training as well as disgraced knights. Jemena looks at me expectantly, and I can tell it is a test of my personality. I have known the woman for only two days, and I can already tell that she is honest and straightforward, perhaps a bit too straightforward. When Ogotai and later Medicine addressed you as squire, they meant it as a slight, did they not? Correct. They riled me up on purpose, and I fell for it. She steps forward, and I recoil. My reaction hurts her. I can tell. Jimena, I'm sorry I am. Do not apologize, Array. I raised my hand against you yesterday. I only have myself to blame for your apprehension. I shall not explain to you why your situation is so precarious. Ah, where to begin? Hmm, we're currently in Louisiana. I have not been moved to a forsaken country of the earth, at least. This region has changed hands quite a few times. As a result, a smattering of people now live here. The original Chichimacha, Chacao, and Chachata, the French and the Canadian French, the Spaniards, Africans, and now the Anglos. Usually, clans do not mix, and those unique circumstances have required some level of adjustment. You see, clans are quite territorial. I almost scoff at the thought, why would diseased people be territorial, and why include savages and slaves in the decision process? Unthinkable. The clans who call this place theirs have gathered to negotiate spheres of influence. There will be four, the Caddis, the Lancaster, the Roland, and the Ekin clans of Spanish, English, and French, and Guinean Gulf origin, respectively. You include slaves in your discussions, I scoff. Something flashes in Jimena's expression. Ah, yes. I forgot to mention we, afflicted, do not care for each other's skin color. You would do well to remember it. How, how very, um, progressive of you. You will understand why in due time. For now, I expect you to treat others with respect, no matter their race or gender. It is for your own good. Understood, Jimena. I will do as she asks. I am to obey her in all things. The issue comes from your master. Lord Narari is your sponsor, so to speak. You are afflicted with him no matter what. Jemena leads me to a comfortable bench and holds my hands. I find the gesture quite touching, coming from the Amazon woman. Lord Narari is not unlike the sovereign of a clan. He is a bit of a rogue, and his arrival was unexpected. Nevertheless, he was welcomed with the utmost courtesy. You see, insulting him is considered an exotic form of suicide. My face must reflect my astonishment, for Jemena decides to explain a bit more. Your master's way is that of the ancient. He deems the rules of hospitality sacred, yet every slight is met with a ruthless vengeance. He is universally feared and reviled, and his reputation reflects on you. What? I interrupt, scandalized. He is a beast, the very soul of kindness, a gentleman of refinement. How dare they slander him so... Jimena does not interrupt my rantings. Instead, she looks at me with pity. How I wish that I could convince her. 
Nevertheless, his reputation is well established and he is known for, uh, not caring for the fate of his protégés. Jimena, I'm so confused. Does he have a clan or not? Do I? He, well, he's just known as the Devourer and, to my knowledge, only one of his spawns besides you still lives. You are the third member of his line. I, uh, what? I'm sorry, Arain. Your legacy will always be known. Lord Narari's afflicted are quite distinctive. Her attention flickers to my mouth. I do not understand. This makes no sense at all. You will, in time. I'm sorry. I am too astonished to reply. None of this makes sense. A mysterious disease, clans, and politics. A clan of three... Jimena, please tell me the truth. Am I hysterical? Is this summer cider where the mad are left to live their insanity? Irene, believe me, you are not insane. I am not insane. This may be a difficult time for you, yet if you are tenacious and if you display a better political acumen than my own, I am confident that you will thrive. Thrive. I do not want to thrive. I want to go home. I just want to go home. I try to hold it, but despite my best efforts, I start crying. Rain. Yes. May I, uh, may I please drink your tears? Nothing that happens in this madhouse can surprise me any more. I nod assent, then yelp as Jimena pulls me into her embrace. Before I can react, she licks my cheeks. How daring. We stay there, and I would otherwise be offended at her familiarity, and yet I realize how much I owe her. If what she says is true, and I have no reason to doubt her words, then my master is a bit of a pariah. Our acquaintance taints her reputation. For honesty and loyalty costing her, and yet she's defended me. I can only be thankful that I met her. For an afflicted, you cry a lot. Oh, shush. I feel so comfortable in her arms. I was already tired before my confrontation with that horrible harridan, and my, oh, my entire body feels so heavy. I believe that I shall take a quick nap. Just uh, a few minutes. End of chapter. Chapter 4. The Seed of Discord. The last harmonies of the hymn washed over the pews and the many attendants. The mass is in full swing now, and I can feel that I am part of something greater than myself, as people from all origins unite with one purpose. I take a deep breath. The church smells like dust and incense, and a unique mix of perfume and sweat that humanity brought here. The morning sun kisses what little skin I show. I am, after all, in my Sunday best. Vanity might be a sin, but how I do love the blue dress I wear. It suits me so much. Papa stands next to me, and I can tell that he is looking at others, acting as my god. The young men who stare will be noted, and he will tell me of it. Those who stare too much will be reprimanded later. A smiling old man in a black cossack and the Catholic priest steps in front of us. His genuine smile makes my heart lighter. Father Armand's homilies are always so wise and pertinent, much better than a priest of Mobila. What a bore that man was, always screaming about eternal damnation and witches. 
Welcome, everyone. Welcome to Mass. I am so very pleased to see you all today. With Easter coming so soon, I was about to make my sermon about the dangers of gluttony and overindulgence. Alas, I received a meat pie from Mrs. Cantrell yesterday, and you all know that I abhor hypocrisy. I chuckle like most of the people present. So, I'll talk instead about something far less pleasant, I'm afraid. It has come to my attention that there have been some scuffles with Mr. Sutton's parish members over the question of religion. The mood turns grim. Why, I can barely blame you for being confused. I remember myself as a loyal subject of King Louis the Fifteenth going out on a hunt pesky snapdragons, and when I came back, I was Spanish. Once more, we chuckle, and the old priest playing us like a fiddle. I do not mind terribly. He is a good man. I go make some tea, and I'm French again. Muchas gracias. The Spanish members in the congregation laugh harder, possibly due to Father Armand's atrocious pronunciation. And now we have been sold to the United States of America by Napoleon himself. Why, it is no wonder we're all at a loss. I now own more flags and shirts, and have considered turning ones into others. <laughs> yes, and so it is that our parish now harbors quite a few Protestants. There were more than a few grumbles at the mention of those heretics. And yet, I ask you this, when Jesus debated the Pharisees and Sadducees, did he punch them in the face? Did he throw manure at their woman? The grumble dies on the spot, and quite a few faces reddened in shame. No, he did not, for he knew that all should have a chance to hear the word of God. We must all remember that we are Christians, not because we are opposed, but because of who we love. I will have no more of this. Instead, you will love thy neighbor as ordered in the Holy Scriptures. From the Protestants are now not your enemies, merely people who walk a different path. Nay, the true enemy are the demon-worshipping sluts, like a rain here. What? You moaned and squirmed under that beast like a wanton scrumpet. He took you on the first night, and you enjoyed every second of it. Neither Sodom nor Gomorrah ever witnessed such a shameful display of lust. But what? N no, you're mistaken. Papa, tell them. I should have drowned you the day you were born. Look at what you've become. You cannot even stand here. Smoke erupts from my now blood-stained gown, and fire soon follows. I try run, but I am blinded. I fall against the wooden bench, and contact sears my hand. It hurts so much, I roll on the ground, screaming in agony. Angry whispers surround me as the congregation watches me die. Yeah, Captain, this should help. Father Armand throws water at me, but it does not stop the fire. I vanish in a flash of blue light and an ear-piercing shriek. I open my eyes to green sheets of the bedpost made out of a reddish wood that I have never seen before. Another day, another room, and I remember that it is no home. I am, at best, an unwilling guest in a gilded cage. I still savor the moment, the only few minutes of lucidity, of peace, before it comes. The thirst... I do not know much about the affliction. I feel that every time I'm told more, the ideas flee through my mind like through a sieve. 
Jimena told me that all will be made clear tomorrow when I meet him again, and I do hope it will be so. I cannot be healthy to remain in such a fugue state for an extended period. I go through my new morning ritual while the craving grows in me. It is a strange thing. The thirst is not limited to the throat and the mouth. It digs in my chest, my belly, and my mind with its needly claws. Every line of thought is derailed, and my feet carry me to the door whenever my attention fails. No, this cannot last. I find another grey set, the same as yesterday. It is again quite tight around the hips, and I suspect that I am wearing one of Jimena's spare sets. As I finish, someone knocks on my door. As I move to unlock it, I pause. What, if it is some impoverished tutor, but the Lancaster shrew and a stooge? They promised to leave me be. They also did not strike me as people of their words, and they are not the only ones who would do me harm. It is at this moment that I notice that there is a tiny glass window, no bigger than a thumbnail at the door. I look through it, and lo and behold, I can see the outside with clarity. It must be some magnifying glass, or a short telescope, mayhap. I thought running water in every room was a luxury, until now. Why, if the lavatories were encrusted with diamonds, I would not be surprised. Speaking of lavatories, why have I not... Hmm, what was I thinking? Another knock at the door, more insistent this time, wakes me up from my reverie. I unlock it and greet Jimena. Forgive me, dear friend, my mind is muddled as ever, and I do pray you brought something to drink. I am parched. And a good day to you, Arain, she replies with a smile. This is Ricardo, another retainer of the clan Cadiz. She says, and only now do I notice another man. He is dressed well, but soberly. He is tall, with brown eyes and curly brown hair, and looks at me not unkindly. I greet him politely, which he returns. Buenas tardes, senorita. Jimena then bids me to let them both in, which is, I suppose, acceptable, since Jimena could be considered a chaperone. After that comes more of the meditation, and we leave. Ricardo stays behind. I feel refreshed, and the thirst releases its hold upon me. Lord Saron requests your presence. He is the local head of the clan Caders, and we should attend him now. What, Jemina, surely you jest this attire? I dare not criticize too much, since she gave it to me so graciously. However, trousers are indecent, particularly those that are, well, uh, so very tight around the hips. Jemina notices my discomfort and smiles knowingly while addressing my concerns. Red not, young one, grey is the colour of the night order, and by wearing it, you are distancing yourself from the court. You are claiming neutrality and impartiality, and this can only help you. I ponder her words in silence. You surprise me, Jimena. This is a well-thought-out statement. Well, I'm not so oblivious as to the vicissitudes of uh, afflicted politics. I usually ignore them. Recent events have forced me to reassess my priorities. I suspect that it has to do with a fall from grace and tactfully refrain from asking. 
In short order, we reached the edge of the many apartments and another set of doors. It appears that each level contains a square of individual living quarters, surrounded on each side by waiting rooms where visitors may gather. How many floors does this building have, and why are there no windows? I ask. Only five floors if you count the basement as one. That said, you have seen but one wing of the fortress. There is more on this level than you have had the opportunity to visit. As for the lack of windows, it's for the sake of safety. Hmm. You will, yes, yes, I will understand in time. One more night and all will be made clear. She opens the door to the large boudoir. Comfortable seats are gathered in small groups and other afflicted infineries mingle there. We ignore them and reach yet another door. Jimena knocks and, without waiting for an answer, gets in. We enter the antechamber of a modest size. The furniture and decorations are the same perk style as everything else that I've seen since leaving the dungeon. This place has been designed for people to stay, not to live. An oaken chest in the corner convinces me that the sole occupant of this place shares my status as a guest, although he might be doing it willingly. A man sits at the work desk facing the entrance. He calmly puts down his pen and raises up to welcome us. He is, without a doubt, on the same level as Lady Moore. His aura pressures my mind, and while it lacks sophistication, there is a solidity to it that reflects in his physique. The caddis landlord is a cornflower blue eyes, like my own, and black curls that reached his muscular shoulders. His facial features are virile and elegant, and complement his roguish beard and mustache. Why, he must have stepped out of some pirate tale, ready to plunder and ravish. I am pleased to see, however, that his gaze is calculating and is opposed to overtly hostile. Once he reaches us, I curtsy partly to hide my surprise. This man is muscular beyond compare. I believe Ogotai has nothing on him, and that he could bend metal with his bare hands. Are all Caddis clan members so dedicated to physical prowess? Rise! I do not stay silent as the man takes my measure. Greetings, Arain. I am Lord Saron of the clan Cadders, and I welcome you to my humble abode. Pleasure is mine, Lord Saron. The man smiles wryly and turns to Jimena. It is as you said, squire. In his mouth, the ranker squire becomes praise for past achievements rather than an insult, and I can tell that Jimena is grateful. Tell me, Arain, has my quartermaster explained the situation to you? She told me that the council and my master unexpected arrival. I see. Has she explained your role in this? My role? Lord Saron just chuckles. As expected of our Jemena, I wager her first answer was to put a blade in your hand. Jemena hisses playfully and crosses her arms under her teasing rebuke. Lord Narari always holds his word and respects a few rules with unerring consistency, yet he is otherwise quite infamous. You make it sound like he has committed atrocities, yet I do believe I would have heard of them if the news, as he looks barely a day over forty. Lord Saron's eyes flicker to Jemina before he continues, 
You would be surprised, young Arrain. He is much older than he looks, and he has traveled extensively over the middle over the years. I think you have realized that the world is apart from the mundane one. Affected are kept secret, and in our society, he has earned quite a reputation, which makes his visit even more unusual. This land is remote. We who reside here have not come. We have been sent. For someone of his stature to be here and to make his presence known, he must be after something. This conclave started three days ago, and it is set to conclude tomorrow. Yes, I am aware of Lord Narari's promise, and I am quite assure you that no nascent fridgling is ever left without receiving their master's blessing. You can look forward to the ceremony without trepidation. I was not worried, but I am certainly now. What happens if I do not? Lord Saron seems temporary, at a loss, so Jemina takes my hand and continues in a reassuring voice. Eventually, the stress on the fledgling's mind becomes too much, and they revert to drones. Rest assured, though, barring a major catastrophe, it shall certainly not occur. Yes, Arrain, all will be fine. I should not even have mentioned it. Let us focus on the main topic, if you will, and the reason for your presence here. You see, Lord Narari requested your hospitality, and we granted it. On the second night, he spent quite some time with Lady Boer, and we suspect that she is the reason for his presence, or rather, her property is. Lady Moore manages the local ship trading for the Lancaster, and to our knowledge, she is the only one with the means to provide him with passage back to the Middle East, or whatever it is he wants to travel to. Can he not arm his own ship? Surely a man of his stature would not be without coin. That is not the issue. Transporting us across vast distances requires specific logistics. It is both easier and safer to reach an agreement with Lady Moore, rather than create a way by oneself. I have so many questions, I know. He says with a smile, I'm so very sorry. Now, as I mentioned, Lord Narari is our guest, and as such, he will not force Lady Moore into serving him. And so, he needed a bargaining chip. You? Me? Yes. As the only person able to help him, Lady Moore has a monopoly and finds herself under no obligation to hasten the discussion. Quite the contrary, Lord Norari is believed to be affluent. Very, very affluent. She could use it to leverage her position, and that is where you come in. I do not follow. What do you know about the Master's other protégés? Everyone except me has been a raving lunatic with barely the ability to speak. Both cadders chuckle before my outraged face. Ah, but it is good to be in polite company, although I would not call Lord Saron a friend. Quite so. The devourer has mm, had quite a few protégés in the past. He cares little for them and has used them as tools more often than not. They were not me. As soon as we get acquainted, my master will have no choice but to see that I am the one who should run away from him. When needed, he reared them into psychopathic maniacs who he then let loose. They ravaged entire parishes before they could be stopped. What? 
No, they must be wrong. This is nonsense. An individual alone would never be able to. I would have heard about... Uh, he would never. What was I thinking about? I blink. Jimena signals to Lord Saron, and he graces me with an apologetic smile. Forgive me. I forget myself. Suffice to say that you are a sword of Democles that hangs over Lady Moore's head, and leave it at that. I don't see how. Jimena clasps my hand between hers. I forgot how cool and soft they could be. Trust me on this. He is saying the truth. I am a sword of Democles hanging over Lady Moore's head. I see... Good. Lord Narari uses your existence as an incentive to push the negotiation forward. He is under no obligation to limit the damages that you could inflict according to his own twisted sense of honor. Lord Saron sits back and he spreads his hands. The implications for you are twofold. The first is that you will be under intense scrutiny while he's here, and most opinions will be, uh, hostile. The second is that, uh, should everything proceed as we think it will, you will be left at Clan Lancaster's mercy. What? But that's horrible. They hate me. Can you... I'm ashamed to beg like this, but can you do something? Alas, no. We have no justifiable way to claim you. The best outcome for you is to serve under them. Best outcome? Surely you just... You underestimate their score. They attacked me ruthlessly. And with little provocation, I would be a fool to put myself at their mercy. I answer, dejected. It was a test of your character. Melusine and Lambert are Lady Moore's only competent subordinates. They were sent there to assess you while someone else was delaying Jemina. Thankfully, they were quite bad and she saw through their awkward attempt. The short time that they had to see you should work in your favor. Melusine will want to keep you alive out of curiosity, if nothing else. They leave me a few seconds to gather my thoughts. So, uh, my master will not take me with him. There is no chance, although I know that you will try anyway. If you wish to live, you will plan accordingly, and I know the way to do so. Tell me, Arrain, what is it that you want? I want this to never have happened. I know that is wishful thinking. Jemena told me to believe her and that this disease has no cure. Then what I most desire is... I want to go home to my friends and family. I want to walk along the fields of sugarcane in the morning light and whatever pet I have that I cannot remember. I want to open a distillery and bring wealth to my family. I want to bag an egret in one shot and eat its meat grilled over charcoal. I want this insanity to stop. I'm too close to crying again and I refuse to do so in front of the local head of the Caddis clan. My passionate declamation only stuns my hosts into silence. I hope that they do not find me whiny and pathetic, but I comfort myself in the certitude that I have cause to be a little bit dramatic. Some unspoken message passes them until Lord Saron finally returns his focus to our conversation. If going home is your fondest wish, we will do our best to grant you the opportunity to do so. This will be a difficult task, however, and you will need to make it worth our while. How mercenary of you, I reply, scandalized. 
I have obligations towards my own clan, and one of them is to protect its members and make sure its resources are well used. You asked me to risk people and funds to rescue a stranger. I thought that I was asking a personal request. It'll take more than two of us, Rain. I'm sorry. I hold my head between my hands, trying to come to terms with the circumstances. Eventually, I calm down enough to ask this of Lord in his terms. Very well, then what would you ask of me? Well, you're with them. Look for information of their business activities, inventories, deeds, and titles that we can use the information. You expect me to spy on them? Yes, I assure you that those mongrels do not deserve your loyalty. It is not that. Spying is just so, um, distasteful. Precisely. Trust me, after tomorrow, you'll change your perspective on the matter. Very well. I shall do what I can, though I fear that you may be overestimating me. After a few pleasantries, Jimena and I leave the Cadiz enclave, and she drags me to her proving grounds to teach me the basics of fencing, including posture and how to hold a blade. I successfully learn a few things before sleep takes me. End of chapter. Chapter 5. The Reveal. Aunt Catherine, my petite chérie, I'm so glad to see you. I rush down the stairs and embrace her. She returns the hug, then steps back and inspects me with a serious face and smiling eyes. Mwah! Why, you have grown any bigger, and we shall have to trim you a bit. Not funny, I reply, laughing. I'm thirteen, and when I turn twenty, all of you will have to look up to me. I shall overcome even Papa. Perish the thought, she answers. Your appetite would bankrupt us all. We chuckle for a while until her expression grows serious. I feel extremely awkward as I am now convinced of the reason for her presence, even more so because she left my cousins at home. We need to have a talk, goddaughter, one that requires privacy, should we retire to your room. Very well. I would like to pout and protest, but I am a woman now and need to show patience and restraint. I lead her up the stairs to my room and claim the bed while she takes the chair. How I do wish Diana was here to see you now. She would be so proud. I am instantly saddened. I am very sorry, ma chérie. I did not mean to make you sad. It's fine. We both miss her. Yes, and this makes it even worse. How I regret it. What I have to do... Dear aunt, you exaggerate. I am no discussing lady issues, Caratat Delicate. Not that. This. Her hands grip around my throat and she pushes me to the mattress. I cannot breathe. I struggle and fight, but she is so much bigger and stronger. My sharp nails dig into her arms to no avail. Red tears of regret mar her cheeks and her mouth distends to show serrated fangs. Oh, my God. I panic even more, but a ready darkness creeps upon my sight. I am sorry, Cherie. This is the only way. He will claim your soul otherwise. I am so very sorry, my Cherie. So sorry. I grow more frantic in my struggle. Her fingers dig into my flesh, draw blood until the pressure is too much. The pain becomes intolerable, and with one grisly crack, my cervical bones shatter. 
Something is wrong. I, uh... What? Oh, I cannot think properly. Everything seems distended and cloudy. I feel the urge to stay there and wait. But I know something is wrong. It smells like fire. The thought of fire horrifies me. A visceral reaction of such intensity that it forces me up. I, uh, I, uh, don't know what to do. No, focus, this has happened before. My name is Rain. I am my own. Slowly, painfully, my psyche stitches itself back together, fraying at the edge. Holding my mind together is like holding sand, and I know I need something. I desperately need it. The thirst hits me like a rock. I bend forward and grip my stomach. Oh, God, it hurts. I need it. I need it. I need it. I need it. I need to find my master. He promised. Then we will leave this forsaken place together. Yes, but first I need to find him now. I pull myself together and just walk to the door. Carefully opening it, its smell hits me first. Wood smoke, gunpowder, blood, excrement. The corridor is deserted, but for two unmoving forms. There first is a servant in a maid outfit, her hands clasped deep wounds in her chest. They are so coated in red that she looks like she is wearing a pair of scarlet gloves. She is also quite dead. Tears trail down her face and her half-lidded eyes. The other one is a man in a black leather robe coat. His clothes are military without being a uniform that I recognize. I see no wound on him, but he is lying in a pool of his own blood. Also dead. I feel nothing. A distant part of me screams that this is not right, that I have seen bodies before, but never like this. I cannot... The man is holding a gun, a pistol of good make with silver embroidery. I get closer and see that it is discharged. A basic inspection yields silvery bullets and a powder horn, which I take. I reload the weapon and cock it. The woman took a bullet wound. Whoever attacked this place, they care not for unarmed woman. They did not even have the grace to give her mercy, instead choosing to let her suffer atrociously before she drew her last breath. I will not have the same fate. I have not come this far to fall to some brutish lout. I need to flee the building. The smell of fire worries me. I dare not find Jimena, for if I know the woman, she will be in the heart of battle if she still lives. Fortunately, I know where to go. We are in one of the wings of the fortress, and the exit should be on the ground level of the wing, quite close to the entrance to the dungeon. I'm quite certain that there are hidden ways, given the builder's strange tastes, but I am not inclined to look for them. I would rather risk a blockade. The thirst is killing me. I go down the floor with all the patience I can manage and stop when something peculiar hits me. This is the floor where I first slept and the door to my first room has been broken open. Only one other room has had its entrance forced. Are they hunting the residents? If so, how do they know where to find them? 
I reached the ground level and slowed down. If the mysterious assailant is still around, this is where I'll find them. As I finish the thought, a few footsteps echo from a nearby hallway and I hear Okotai's distinctive voice. Incompetent. I would never have agreed to this. How many men do you need to... Relieved, I step out of the alcove as Ogotai comes into view, taking care to hide my pistol at my back in case he proves himself to be too nervous. A gravelly voice retorts, but I barely pay attention until his two companions step into view. Both of them look like hard men. The older one has a deep claw scars on one side of his face, barely missing his eyes. The second one is much younger, with a red hair and a sharp look. Both of them wear the black overcoat of the intruders, enough weapons to start a small conflict and, unexplainably, silver crosses. We all freeze at the sight of each other. I understand immediately. Traitor. I turn to run and Okatai moves. I will never make it in time, and that is fine. A part of me that I do not recognize rises to the surface of my being. There is barely enough of me left to direct it, and yet it is enough. I move as well. Just as the edge of his blade kisses my neck, I lift the firearm and pull the trigger. Point blank range. A child could not miss. Ogatai is so surprised at the sight of the muzzle that I see his mouth form an O an instant before it is blown away. I am not done. The two men instantly pulled guns and are now firing. I grab Ogatai's body and use it as a shield. Two dull impacts make his chest shiver as I rush forward. I am barely thinking. Something is taking over and I let it. I will live. I will live, and so they must die. Okatai's body flies through the air to the older man who tries to dodge to the side. A pointless endeavor. The warrior's body is too massive and the corridor too tight. With a grunt, he falls. So thirsty... With a high-pitched scream, I rush the redhead until the flash of silver makes me dodge. Something flies over my shoulder. The corridor tightens now, plays against me, and I move to avoid another one. My foe anticipates it, and a third something stabs my arm with a flash of blinding pain. A knife, I hiss and barely manage to endure it. He is close, so close. Something glows white, and I am propelled backwards by an implacable force. Swatted like an insect, I bounce on the floor. No, no, this cannot be. I'm too thirsty. I need it. I need it. I manage to stagger back up in time to find the young man taking out another pistol from the recesses in his vest and aim at me. As he fires it, I throw my own discharged firearm. It impacts his shoulder, and he shoots, and a massive hole opens in the wall next to me. I need to get closer, but I can't. What to do? No, of course! I rush forward once more as the man takes out a smaller pistol from yet another pocket. How many does he even have? This time he waits calmly for me to approach. When I am a few feet away, I pull the knife from my arm and throw it at him. 
I care not about the pain. I only care about the deliverance we will offer me. My orchid throw sends the flat of the blade to impact his nose, and it breaks his concentration. As he recoils from the pain, I manage to move around him. I grab his neck with two fingers and push him back. At the same time, I bring one of his arms back and bite. Oh, yes. Oh, no. This isn't close to what I've had before. It simply will not do. I cannot take it in. It barely tells the edge anymore. I need him. I need it from him. Why? What? Nothing makes sense anymore. Somebody crackles like a madwoman. Me. I stand up and grab a dagger, ignoring everything else. I follow my nose to a draft of fresh air I feel. The air is tainted by smoke, but this is the way out. I know it. I will live. In a daze, I leave the three bodies behind and walk past corpses of servants and soldiers, as well as one inexplicable pile of ash and the scene from the battlefield. A broken-down barricade stands not ten meters from a half-collapsed wall. I count more than a dozen bodies of both sides strewn about, including a few women and quite the assortment of weapons. It looks like the invaders stormed it and left no one alive. As I pass the barricade, the reason for their anger lies before me. The entrance of the swing of the fortress has been blown open, yet the wall partly collapsed, creating a choke point, and corpses of the invaders litter the ground. Even in my dazed state, I am stunned by the extent of the destruction that I am witnessing. What manner of fanatics would throw their lives away like this? What would justify such determination or such hatred? I cross the door and find trails of drying blood. Recent. Someone dragged their wounded out. So thirsty. I stumble forward and find myself in a massive hall the size of a cathedral. The walls are neutral. This this some kind of cave. Another set of doors faces me. The cave goes up at my left, but the draft comes from my right. I walk in that direction. This place is empty, but for the dead. A handful of oil lamps provides enough illumination to see clearly. The hall is barren, and its sole purpose seems to be to instill a sense of majesty or dread. I cannot tell. I quickly reach a set of massive stairs when two forms step down from it. I did not hear them at all. The first one is a bearded blonde man with pale gray eyes in a blue overcoat who frowns at my sight. The second one elicits a gasp of surprise from me. I've seen many slaves and freemen hailing from Haiti or the continent. They always have something about them while in the presence of many white folks. Sometimes it is fear, sometimes respect, but quite often it is defiance. But what they all have in common is that they never let their guard down. Not this man. Dressed in a beige leather ensemble with a quite visibly armed, he has a sarcastic smirk on his face that shows that he fears no one. 
Bar, master, and my father, he is also the tallest man that I have ever seen. The two newcomers are followed by brown-haired twin men and a black woman, respectively. All of them exude the same cold aura I now attribute to the afflicted, with the first two being much par with Lady Moore or Lord Saron. I need to go up. I need to break through. No, they are stronger. I cannot leave. The blonde man steps towards me, and before I can react, he moves faster than I can think, and my vision turns white. Ah! One moment I am looking forward, the next I am held above the ground by five sharp things digging into my stomach. The pain is unbearable, and the tenuous hold that I had on my mind finally breaks. It is too much. I stay there, unmoving. I don't have to struggle. I don't have to breathe. Moving just means more pain. Better to stay and wait. Focus on fighting the fog. The last dregs of consciousness I can hold to. If I let go, it's over. I know it, my soul. As I drift in and out, I can hear fragments of conversation. Clear as day, someone betrayed us, and we know it cannot be the cattle. Raving imbecile, she has been one of us for four days, while this raid is weeks in the making. Cannot trust his spawn. I knew it was a mistake. Bring her back up or we'll never know. She fed and is still degenerating. She's almost too far gone. Somehow, we are going up. We reach another grand entrance, this one made of wood. We walk through the burnt husks of a mansion. We walk through a garden. We are outside. Finally, something shakes me from my torpor and I let out a weak moan. It's him, my salvation. His mere presence stitches more of me back together, enough to follow what happens. The blonde man throws me to the ground. I curl up around my belly. I fight the pain. I can do nothing else. I will live. I just need a few more minutes, and Master will save me just a bit longer. Back so soon... Don't play coy, Lord Narari. I'm wise to your schemes. I really doubt that little Gaspard. Do you not even have enough fingers to count them all? You! So you admit that this is your doing. What is? This attack on us. You came here, and not a week goes by, and we're assaulted. You expect me to believe that this is a coincidence. Or it could be because of the longer way to conclave. I would explain Occam's razor and confirmation bias to you, Gaspard, but I lack the patience and crayons to do so. Oh, enough, Lord Gaspard. If you want to know more, we have to but ask the lass, Lord Narari. I admit that I'm curious as well. Master grabs my neck. I do not need to see him to know it. His touch makes my body lax. Even the pain and thirst fade. I find myself looking into his face. Ah, those handsome features, the kingly presence, the noble beard, his eight fangs. Arrain, oh, my name is on his lips. I am undone. I find myself smiling like a witless maiden. I love him so much. Answer me. The world gradually disappears as my body relaxes completely. The world fades away, and at the same time, I regain perfect clarity. 
Never since my awakening in this dark cell have I felt so focused. What did I ask of you when we first met? Do not speak unless spoken to. Address you as master. Behave. Obey Jimena in all things. Have you spoken without leave? No, master. Have you addressed me as anything but master? No, master. Have you obeyed Jimena in all things? Yes. Did you help the assailants? Have you behaved? I, uh, I think so, master. We shall see. Ask your questions, Lord Ekon, and I shall relay them to her. His attention goes to someone else. No, look at me. He turns back to me. Yes. When did you wake up? I do not know. Maybe fifteen minutes ago? At sunset, then. Do you know in the raid of the fortress? Yes. Did you help the assailants in any way at any time? No. There is some commotion outside. After a while, he asks me more. Little Gaspard here thinks that we were betrayed. What do you think, little one? I agree. Another commotion. Master looks pleasantly surprised. Oh, and why do you think so? I saw Lord Ogatai walk with two of the invaders. They were talking. This time the commotion is quite loud. Tell us about it. As I relay the encounter to Master, his smile grows wider and more malevolent until he laughs. The sinister sound sets my stomach aflutter. Ah, young Arrain, you brought me something I would not have expected to find in this forsaken corner of the world. Entertainment. Jemena, did my spawn behave properly? A pause. Very well, then. I declare that you upheld your end of the bargain. I am pleasantly surprised by this outcome. It is not every decade that someone manages to elate me so. As promised, you may draw my essence. May it be everything that you hoped for. He slowly drags me up to the crook of his neck. I do not understand what he wants until he places my mouth against his soft skin. My mouth instinctively opens and he lets himself be touched. I feel something thick and syrupy pass through my parted lips. Time stops. Even if one day I forget my name, even if I live a thousand years, even if I am robbed of every last shred of sanity that I have, I shall never forget the moment I taste this essence. I will go on blessed by the experience and cursed by the knowledge that nothing will ever compare. Words escape me. I die of pleasure a thousand times. The wave of agony and bliss burns through me again and again, lasting both an instant and an eternity. And I am carried on it helplessly. After a while, visions like fleeting dreams appear to me. I am in a chariot pulled by two horses. I let loose an arrow that flies through and buries itself in a man's throat. My first kill, one of many. A foreign princess prostrates herself before me, the blood of her brother still staining her dress. I utter a few words, with tears of humiliation rolling on her face. She unclasps her gown. It falls smoothly from her golden shoulders. I stand up. An older woman sits in the heart of an intricate garden. Her beauty and wisdom are legend. She is writing an intricate spell on a square of tanned human skin. 
When she hears me, she looks up and smiles. I lie on a bed stained with my sweat and blood. My hands grip the hole in my gut. The stench is nauseating. The same woman leans against me with a sad smile. She tenderly brushes my hair back. Her other hand brings a vial of black liquid to my lips, and I swallow it. I pull away and gasp before blazing potency makes me burn from within. My fraying mind is reforged at its sharpest and coldest. The power gorses through me and invades every organ. I absorb it like a woman dying of thirst. I remember. My name is Arain Lucilla Beatrice Reynard, and I have a father and an older brother, a family. Friends, hopes, and dreams. I came to New Orleans with my best friend on a short stay. I intended to talk with an acquaintance at the pool and met Master here. He, uh... No. No. No! No, 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 no. What have you done to me? You! You! The monster laughs. He is filled with mirth. No. This cannot be. It is a nightmare. No! I refuse to. No, it's... uh, What have you done? What am I? Why? So much anger, little one. Do you hate me? Do you? How can I hate him when I love him so much? And I hate him so much, and I love him so much, and I... uh, No, master. No... Then, are you happy? Dears, how very precious. No, was it not your desire? How? How dare you? You killed me and turned me into this. His hand slides from my neck on my throat. I will have no mouth from you, little one, after everything I have done for you. He smiles disarmingly. You were so very precious, a little peasant girl who dared approach me, as if we were equal. You even addressed me first, introduced yourself freely. I wanted to tear you apart, limb by limb, for your insolence, but then you started talking. So many projects, so many dreams, this drive, this passion, I was so touched. You reminded me of someone I knew long ago. Like you, she reached above her station. However, she succeeded. Her deeds inspired a whole civilization. You were like her. You wanted it all, and you even wanted me. You asked me if I was married. Such presumption, such hubris. I had to see it through. So here you are, little one, like me, a vampire. Free of the constraints of the barely civilized corner of the world. You can live forever. Time will not wither your beauty, nor will it dull your wit. You can get it all, and you can even get me. Show me how far you can overreach, little Adrain, and show me that I did not waste my blood and my seed on yet another failure. You will not get away with this. God, did you want to say God? There is only one God left for us. Look up. Despite my best efforts, I raise my eyes to the sky above. So beautiful. 
A canopy of lights and darkness, a canvas where some divine artist threw lights and shades of colors in some unfathomable pattern. I never knew the heavens could be so breathtaking, and I would stare and wonder were it not more the new celestial body. Twisted clouds and rooted of baleful purple enshrine an eye of black sclera and a slitted red pupil. It is absolute. Massive, it dwarfs even the moon. The sky has a gigantic eye, a demonic cat eye in a purple crown. I stare speechless, it stares back. I want to close my eyes, but I cannot, for Master bid me look. Sheer terror courses through my mind. It is alive. I feel its presence. Welcome to your journey. A black and red little one, Master says. May it be everything that you hope for. End of chapter. Chapter 6. Uprooted. The man throws me on the ground. As agreed, she is yours, he says without a care. I can barely lift my eyes to see the hem of a blue dress. This is all too much. I finally understand... I remember dying. I now a monster. I've been a monster for four days. I drink blood. I am damned. An abomination. And the people in the corridor, they were priests. I killed a priest. That boy in the first night, I killed him too. And before that, the last night as a normal person, I, uh, he uh, did things to me. This is not a nightmare. I know it with perfect clarity, just as I know that I should feel hysterical, but cannot. I should wish for death, but I do not. Something in me is broken. Old age may have robbed me of my mind eventually, but what streams in my consciousness, what moves my heart now, is not the spirit of a Persian. It is much colder. Already the tears I shed have dried on my cheeks. The panic has receded, replaced by a cold certainty. I am no longer a rain that danced and drank fine wine on that night. The one who suffered, the one who fought and begged for freedom, then for a quick death. I am not her, not entirely. I am a vampire, and I want to live. I may have been robbed of the future I envisioned, but I will not throw away this pathetic excuse of a life until I fulfill this promise to myself. I am a rain, and I am my own. I will live, and I will go home. They cannot take this from me. I will not let them. Never. As Jimena said, patience and determination shall carry me. Jimena, she helped me. She showed me compassion, kindness, and honor. Although all not monsters... I turn my head left, and there she is, her armor reddened by blood, but otherwise unharmed. She looks forward like a soldier at a parade. As I look, she turns to me briefly, long enough for me to see the pity in her eyes. I need to think to evaluate. I need time. 
Not so fast, old monster. You think me daft. You want to have me believe Moore's servant betrayed us all, and you had nothing to do with it. Both of you plotted our demise. Those are preposterous accusations, Gaspard, and you should know better, Lord Saron answered. All of you are too blind to see it, but I will not be made a fool. Careful, my master says, and the clearing goes deathly still. It sounds like you insulted me. Twice. And what do you know, Varner? You hide behind a false code and vile sorceries. Oh, you believe me weak of arm, young Gaspard? Would you wager your eternity on it? You'll regret your words, you decrepit husk. I accept your challenge. No magic, only our blades and us. I turn my head in disbelief to the blonde-bearded man, Gaspard, the representative of Clan Roland. Is he serious? Can he not tell how utterly outclassed he is? Witnessed by Clan Ekon, the tall black man declares in a low rumble. Witnessed by Clan Cadiz, Lord Saron adds. Witnessed by Clan Lancaster. Farewell, Gaspard. Cannot say that I'll miss you. Lady Moore continues with a voice as cold as it is uncaring. The group moves away, and I push myself up to Lady Moore's icy eyes. Well, are you going to hug the dirt like the scullery maid for much longer? I stand up before her and grind my teeth in silence. I do not know the rules that regulate vampires, and therefore I do not know how freely she can kill me. I need to make her believe that keeping me alive will be more beneficial than finishing me off. You serve me now. Yes, Lady Moore. Well, I have to discipline you. No, Lady Moore. <laughs> At least you know your place. Even monkeys can be taught, it seems. That trollop, I want to branch off her head. Ah, so this is what it is. I can feel my own mind, twisted and corrupted like a surface of a lake, and there is something else, something deeper. When I was alive, I was prone to feeding anger, but this, this is different. It is like a twisted thing that prowls beneath the surface, pitiless and predatory. It is a part of me that fought those priests and took Ogotai by surprise, and if I release it, it'll not throw harsh words. Right now, it is of no use to me. Any resistance on my part will be met swiftly and mercilessly. Mistaking my silence for complacency, Lady Moore smirks and moves away. Follow. I do, and finally take the time to check around me. We stand in the middle of an exquisite garden, the mansion dominating it might have been a sight at some point. Now, only blackened beams and collapsed walls remain. Somebody dug a path from the outside to the massive steel door at its heart. Bodies of those battle priests litter the grass, although most of them have died in some sort of defensive line. Collapsed tents and slain beasts form a grisly spectacle somewhere at the edge of the property. I can spot servants packing belongings into coaches in the distance, so it seems some of them survived. Vampires gather around the flat circle in silence. It seems that each lord has between two and five followers who stand behind them. I want to join Master, yet I place myself behind the Lancasters. Melusine turns to my direction and smiles cruelly. I do not react. 
The two combatants enter the arena. Lady Moore takes a white band and releases it without ceremony. I can see every detail on Lord Roland's arrogant face, his pride, his disdain, the certainty of his victory. I shall never be so utterly brainless, and thus I promise myself to keep the beast in check. What follows is a lesson, and this lesson is not for Gaspard, it is for the rest of us. One moment the Lord stands at the edge of the circle, the next moment he is next to Master in a perfect lunge. His black-bladed sword kisses the edge of Master's deep blue coat without touching it. Master has one hand in Gaspard's sword arm and the second deep within his chest. Gaspard's expression turns from triumph to surprise, to pain, to horror. A torrent of black blood rains on the ground, and a Roland clan representative staggers and lurches, only kept standing by Master's steel grip. With a deliberate slowness, Master ignores the man's bleeding eyes and releases the blade, which falls to the ground. He then grabs his throat. What follows is a moment that I shall never forget. The sound of flesh tearing and bone breaking, the suction noise as the head is pulled minutely, the vertebra revealed to the world with an agonizing slowness. It takes the man ten seconds to die in a flash of blue fire. Ten seconds during which Master reveals his true colors. He is utterly bored. This is nothing to him. Just another insect that needs its wings pulled so that the other vermin know better than to provoke him. The local master did not even warrant the satisfaction of the kill. He was such an easy prey. Master turns to the silent assembly with one raised eyebrow. Lady Moore bows to him. Medicine will show you to your ship, my lord. I derive a small amount of satisfaction from the abject terror shown on the little harlot's face. Unfortunately, when Master turns to leave, I take a step forward. Master, I know I shouldn't yet. I must try. He ignores me completely. He leaves without a word, without even a look. I don't understand. Have I not been a good girl? I did everything he asked. I did my best. So why... Why? The other vampires are perfectly silent, so my outburst and the following shame are witnessed by all. When I think I could not possibly get worse, I feel two claws grab my neck. Lady Moore's cold breath on my ear makes me shiver. Not ten minutes in my service, and you already embarrass me in front of my peers. It looks like you need some discipline after all. Undress. What? Her vicious claws draw blood, and I convulse in answer. Ugh, this really hurts. Do not make me repeat myself. I can only be grateful that most of the other vampires leave to attend other business as I slowly take off my gown, gritting my teeth. In short order, I stand in my small clothes in the middle of the clearing, grateful that the view of my disrobed body remains hidden behind the curtain of green. This is the most indecent thing that I've been forced to do. I wince as a memory worms itself to the forefront of my mind. It is, in fact, the second most indecent thing that I've ever been submitted to. God, why did I have to die like this? What have I ever done to deserve such treatment? 
Why have you forsaken me? I did not receive an answer. Not that I expected one. I do not wait long. A bearded man soon reaches me. I recognize the insane blue eyes that greeted me in my cell block on the first day. He leers at me shamelessly. I try to cover myself as best I can. <laughs> Look like Nirari knows how to pick him. I hiss in outrage and he recoils. Enough, Boudouin. She is more than you can tame. The man looks at me thoughtfully, then throws me another dress, a humble apparel of white linen. I would never have let one of the estate servants walk around in this rag, and yet I treasure it, for it is the only material thing I possess now. I do believe that Lady Moore did not want me naked, only so the unspoken threat of this condition deters me from opposing her will. As soon as I am covered, we leave to join the procession of coaches and carriages leaving the fortress grounds. The remaining Roland clan members precede us, and I recognize the twins. It appears that the death of their leader has not affected them in the slightest. I am horrified when I see where I am led. Lady Moore turns to me, expecting a reaction, yet this time I manage to remain silent. A cage... They are going to transport me in a cage like a circus animal. Oh, I wish to make them suffer, but I need to exert patience. But Wayne, there's a pair of manacles hanging from his shoulder, a mass of objects of cruel metal, and I have no intention of letting him come anywhere near me if I can help it. Lady Moore gestures to the door, and I get in wordlessly. It is a testament to my circumstances that I am grateful that the cage is clean. Lambert silently rides a horse to my side. He pointedly ignores me, and I am only too happy to return the favor. Clan Lancaster is the last to leave the fortress grounds. Only a dozen servants are left to clean up the battlefield. Our little procession is made of six coaches and four carts, including my own, and we depart in silence. Despite my circumstances, I cannot help but look around me in wonder. For the first time, I truly appreciate the night in the bayou. The opposing wet heat of summer is mercifully subdued at night, or perhaps I am no longer so afflicted by it. Sounds and smells form a vast harmony, and I spend quite a bit of time looking at strange arrangements in the leaves and barks of the cypresses and ripples and ponds of brackish waters. Every insect and every plant hold a new fascination for me, as if I'd never seen them before. I suspect that vampire vision is highly superior to that of humans to help us perform our foul deeds, and it brings me some consolation that my new senses can be used for more than just evil. It is also my luck that the path is quite muddy, else I'd be swallowing an entire caravan's dust. We are in July, and night is the only time when the weather is tolerable. So, I am a vampire. I have no idea what that means. Never have I heard of such a thing. I have difficulties admitting that monsters could live amongst humans, moving faster than the eye can see and digging into people's chests. That will, without it being common knowledge. Surely, people would ask questions upon having their blood consumed. If those battle priests know of us, why not call the colonial militia and give us the cannons? 
I am simply baffled. There are so many things that I do not understand. Trudy, I am a toddler once more. Thinking on it, can I still bear children? Would I even want to? Would they not be twisted things like me? I abandoned this line of thought. I will not give Lambert the satisfaction of seeing me cry a second time in a single night. I would also not want to ask questions. It appears that talking without leave is not looked upon kindly. My cart is at the very tail of the procession, and we advance at a snail's pace, so much that we eventually lose sight of the rest. I assume it is so that many carts together in the middle of the night would attract undue attention, so I am only left with a human driver and the ever-taciturn Lambert. Fortunately, the new experience of the night entertains me until we come across a patrol with three armed militia. They look at me questioningly. I do not wish to resist at this point. Jimena's promise is still clear in my mind, and I do not doubt that Lambert would disable them in an instant, should I try and force a rescue. I am therefore compelled to hear him explain how I am a wanton daughter of a tailor, who ran away from home after finding out that I was with child, from an unknown father, no less. I apparently murdered the babe as it was born so that I could continue my depravity. The faces of the men turned to weariness, to shock, and eventually to disgust as Lambert spins his tale. He is a good an actor as I took him for, and I note to myself that I shall never trust a word he says. We leave the patrol behind us and cross a small village. The night comes alive with the smell of humanity. Under the stench of the sweat and unwashed bodies, there is a perfume of vitality that makes my jaw ache. I pass my tongue over my fangs, only to find that there are eight of them. They have replaced all my canines, as well as the outermost incisors as well. Jimena mentioned that my bloodline's appearance was unmistakable. This is certainly why. Now that my memory is clearer, the other vampires all have four. This is grave news. It means that I must absolutely keep the sight of my teeth to myself, lest my lineage be immediately found. I renumerate. We leave the village, and I come upon another patrol. This time, Lambert entertains them with the tale of my murder of an old man who welcomed me to his hearth, and how I poisoned him and seduced his son to steal the family's fortune. Again, their looks of horror on their faces are striking, and I wonder why Lambert lies with such a plumb when there is no benefit to it. He is not even having fun. After a while, the land gradually changes, and we find ourselves next to the colonial house of massive proportions. For a while now, I have smelled the Paris tint of brine in the wind, and I remember that the clan Lancaster has an interest in the sea trade. I suspect that we may not be far from New Orleans, the place of my demise. Lambert opens the cage and lets me out. I follow him in silence across the grand entrance into a series of corridors. We walk past the tastefully decorated rooms and a few submissive servants in blue uniforms to a closed door. Lambert knocks and we go in. The room is a boudoir of good size illuminated by candles. A handful of vampires lounge lazily in comfortable couches. 
I'm horrified, not by their number, but by their immobility. There is not a whisper of moving fabric, not a sigh. They aren't even breathing. Shocked, I begin holding my breath. I'm still holding it as Lambert leads me to the forefront. I am still holding it as Lady Moore stands up from the throne-like seat to address the crowd. The vampires shift their posture to show attention. I feel like I'm watching a puppet show, so unnatural their movements are. I count seven in total. Besides Lady Moore, Madison, and Lambert, there are also weasel-faced scoundrel, a bovine toad of a woman, a witless-looking slip of a girl with crooked teeth, and a balding brute. It finally occurs to me that Louisiana is not a land of exiles just for humans. My esteemed clan kin, the conclave has reached a favorable conclusion, and once more, the Lancaster has risen to top. The successful negotiations I conducted solidified our hold on New Orleans and its boon of treasure and cattle. Our success is assured. The grisly automatons clap politely like the obedient curs that they are. This victory has not come without its share of disappointment, however. As you know, we lost Caitlin, and we were betrayed by Ogatai. May his soul burn forever. The assembly does not betray any sort of reaction. I do not believe that such a sorry lot would harbor any kind of sympathy for each other. We have received a new member as payment for services rendered by Lord Narari himself. As the foremost clan in this land, the Devourer has favored us with his business, and we will reap the benefits for years to come. Not if I can help it. Please welcome Arain to our loving family. I feel like a piece of meat dangled before a pack of bloodhounds. She is still yet very young. So, it'll be up to Melusine to rear her into a valuable and productive member of our community, for the good of all. I notice the vilest and cruelest of smiles on the red-headed Harridan. Ah, truly, I'll need every scrap of self-control that I can salvage. And with this, I shall retire for the evening. There is much for me to do. The rest of them stands as she leaves. Melisand reaches the side and grabs my arms as if we were best friends before dragging me out of the room. I am surprised to see that I am quite a bit taller than her, but it matters not. She has me, and she knows it. This will be difficult. End of chapter. Chapter number seven. Servitude. I open my eyes to total darkness. The pantry-sized room they call mine greets me in all its misery. In truth, it is a cell, for what bedroom has a lock of the outside? No nightmare tonight, a pleasant change. I hear footsteps coming. I do not even have the luxury of privacy. I have learned much in a week. Vampires die at dawn and wake up at sunset or before. During that time, we are utterly defenseless. Sunlight kills us, silver blades cut us deep. Fire will turn us into torches faster than you can say arson. Our mind is prone to distractions unless we hunt. In return, our body is superior in all accounts and can heal even from the most grievous of wounds, given enough time and nourishment. We do not have to breathe, poison cannot hurt us, and we cannot drown. Only the destruction of our head and heart spells certain end. 
That implies that Ogotai may have survived his wounds if one of the priests supplied him with blood. Blood. It is the red of the journey. The energy we need to consume to sustain the parody of life that animates us. It cannot be stored. It must be consumed from the source, and without it, the predatory part of us will take over until it tastes the crimson nectar. Vampires who lose control sometimes fail to get it back. They must be hunted down like beasts. The thirst drives us and trains every aspect of our existence. It can never be completely overcome, and it'll never be truly sated. For fledglings like me, it is a daily struggle to control it, and then another struggle to not fall into torpor after we slake it. For this, we have a few tools. Vampire saliva can make the bite extremely pleasurable, and then closes the wound so that it fades at record pace. Bitten individuals will develop an unnatural loyalty for the vampire, despite themselves. Our eyes can confuse memory, though I am sure there is more to it than I was told. I have not been allowed to leave the building so far, and every night a new human is brought to me. Using Jimena's method, I have been able to stop feeding without Melisin hurting me too much. I can tell that she is disappointed, and that death of the cattle would have been a good excuse for her to belittle me. The logistics used in feeding eight vampires must truly be staggering. That is probably how the battle priests usually find us. We have a few distinctive features, such as the claws and pallor, but our fangs are usually hidden unless the grasp of the thirst gets too strong. We are not reflected by mirrors either, which I find quite silly. All in all, it seems that whoever created us meant for us to infiltrate the human world. Hunting us must be quite difficult. When I asked about the priests, Melison became unusually tight-lipped, and I had to drop the topic. I hear soft gasps. Joan is gathering enough courage to knock on my door. She does not have the submissive behavior of servants who have bowed to vampires for a long time. There is a fire in her that I have not managed to extinguish. Melison knows this, and that is why she is charged with being the first I see in the morning. I mean, evening. If I drink her dry, Melison has killed two birds with one stone. She is quite petty like that. So far, I have managed to control myself, but it is becoming difficult. Melison is stopping my feeding just a little bit earlier. Every night, I find myself control eroding a bit more. There is a knock on my door. Come in. The courtesy is a joke and we both know it, yet I cling to any appearance of control and every scrap of manners to keep my thirst at bay. Mistress Medicine requests your present, Miss Rain. I nod, not trusting myself to speak as she leaves promptly. The scent of vitality caresses my nostrils and the thirst punches me in the gut. I feel like someone scooped my innards with a frozen axe. Nobody has fed from Joan in a long time, so it would be fine if I had a taste. Just a taste. Medicine can punish me later. I need just a tiny, tiny morsel. Just a few droplets. No, I must not. When I come to, my hand is in the middle of the door and Joan is standing still with her back to the wood. She is perfectly still, her eyes closed and her face lacks, but I can smell the fear in her perspiration, hear it in the beat of her heart. She's doing her best to not struggle, knowing that the mere move will set me off. 
So close. So very, very close. Finger by finger, I release my hold and open the door for her. Only when I turn around does she leave. That was a close call. But I should run after her and tackle her to the ground and then no, I will not. I get changed mechanically and reach medicine's office. She is in deep conversation with a richly dressed man with a fetching appearance. He does not know what he is here for. I can see it in his splashed face and the scent of his arousal. To be alone with a woman like medicine is titillating him. His mind has yet to be tainted by one of us. Pray. Medicine plays us both with a lengthy introduction. His initial frustration at being interrupted turns to pure lust at the sight of two beautiful women. I can imagine the lewd pictures his twisted mind must provide. How many indignities must I be subjected to before it is over? I have only been here for a week, a week of constant battle against myself and medicine's petty humiliations. Finally, I am given an opportunity to embrace him under some ridiculous pretext. My hand reaches around his shoulders and I nuzzle his neck, and I am in a wooden cabin. One lick, one bite. Finally... I drank two more swallows than I was granted by enduring the pain of the hussy's claw in my neck. She drew blood. After I'm done, she carries him to parts unknown while I attempt to scrub my memory of his erect manhood against my belly. How I wish padded pants were in fashion. With a knock, the other two vampires join us and medicine resumes her lessons. What follows is what makes my predicament border on intolerable. I've already been robbed of my humanity. Now the Lancaster Princess is after my sanity as well. Her teachings are a tragedy in two acts and of four participants. First, she will demonstrate her knowledge to a specific topic, like a superiority of the Lancaster philosophy, with as much arrogance and derision as she can muster. While she does so, my fellow students, Bovine Charlotte and the witless Sophie, will gush at medicine's intellect and overall superiority. Praises must be properly heaped on, and the princess will select a different favorite every day, who will receive her benevolence while the other two accumulate scathing remarks and disparaging comments. Suffice to say, I only participate enough to not be punished. After a while, she'll test our understanding with tricky questions. She is a way to slide cutting remarks and casual humiliations in every sentence that is designed to leave the rest of us ashamed. She expertly divides and conquers us, constantly pulling our group down, but distributing just enough encouragement to foster a nasty form of competition. She gives a favor as easily as she takes it and does her best to keep us on our toes. I can only grit my teeth, and I am less insulted by her numerous slights and more by the fact that she thinks herself smart. She can only do this because my two companions have the intellect of a shriveled turnip between the two of them. I do not know who turned those two brainless twits into creatures of the night. I think they should have stabbed themselves in the groin instead. And so our numbers are limited due to the difficulty involved in creating a spawn. A reindeer, can you tell me why? Only a master can create a spawn, and it takes a century on average to become one. The process itself is also taxing, and will leave the master weakened for years. I'm sure that you'll be a master very soon, mistress. I can already feel your presence. Charlotte gushes, that's Sal. 
Quite so. Sometimes I cannot tell if you are pausing or if it's Lady Moore. If battle priests were to bust the door open right now and set us all ablaze, I believe that I would let them and be grateful to boot. Of course, we Lancaster are always picked from the best stock. How can she say that with a straight face? I see the malevolent Clinton Medicine's eyes, and I can tell that she should have nodded along with the two stooges. Now, I must endure her for a bit longer before she switches targets. Yes, and it is our duty to share the blessing of our good breeding with our bloodlines. Don't you agree, Harain? Of course, Mistress and I will forever be grateful for the privilege of your presence. I consider myself lucky to be taught by no other than you. I can feel two baleful glares directed at me as I apparently overtake the two simpletons in the packing order. Quite so, and surely you'd feel grateful to be shown such favor. Yes. I nodded assent. I do not like where this is going, but I must play along. Whatever medicine wants to do to me, I'll be compelled to do. My only hope is that she loses interest to pick on another. With a tragic betrayal and the ungrateful savage, we are in dire need of helping hands to manage the city. Surely you would content to assist us, yes? I freeze. With no heartbeat and no need to breathe, we vampires can reach a state of perfect immobility, which I am displaying right now. I absolutely need to show a hint of fear, and then submission. If she guesses the truth, she might withdraw her offer just to see me suffer. I pretend to swallow nervously and flinch before giving her a nervous smile. Of course, Mistress Millicent, I would be delighted to repay the debt of gratitude I owe you. Please, I beg of you, please accept this lie. I would do anything to get out of this farce of a tea party, if only for a few days. I will shovel horse dung by the cartload. I will crawl in the mud and catch frogs with my bare hands. Please let me go. Three sadistic smiles inform me of the success of my little facade. Then I shall begin private lessons tomorrow in order to prepare you. We would not want you to bring some shame to your benefactors with your poor performance after all. I barely managed to contain my excitement for the next hour. I compel myself to look suitably worried and act more submissive than usual. Finally, I may be able to go out. I wake up to the whispers of gossip. Cattle are a strange sort. They are unusually obedient and unerringly loyal, yet their flaws feel exacerbated. They backstab, plot, and slander to earn favor of creatures that will never see them as more than blood sources and bed warmers. They have their use, though. After a week of being harmless, they have started to treat me with indifference. They do not seek my favors due to my status as an outsider and rumors about my bloodline, and my lack of reaction means that they have lowered their guard when I'm around them. And so I've picked up quite a bit of information. Most of it disgusts me. The Lancaster vampires are petty, vicious, and promiscuous lot. Each one has their own flaws, their twisted desires, and vile habits. They're all detestable, each in their own special way. Medicine enjoys breaking couples. She will track them for days, seduce, and have her way with a fiancé, and then arrange a public confrontation. The more violent the breakup, the better for her. 
Lambert is a compulsive liar who preys after young and ambitious merchants. He will deceive and scam them until they are ruined. It is only at the moment of their fall that he will display something more than his usual apathy. Charlotte is a violent booty with an inferiority complex. She enjoys breaking servants, and I'm convinced she used to be one. Sophie is a wit of boiled potato and a half of charm. She does not behave too crudely because she lacks the cunning to do so. It could be an act, of course, and I never let my guard around her. Weasel Man answers to Wilburn, and he is a serial assaulter. Only his beer of medicine has protected me from his attention. I surmise that he has tried something on her, and she has made him follow lessons unforgettable. The burly, bald man is named Harold, and he's a chip on his shoulder. Every perceived slight against him eventually turns into physical punishment, and no amount of pleading and promises changes his belief that everyone is insulting him behind his back. If their continued existence is not proof that God has abandoned this world, then I do not know what is. My name is Irene. I am my own. I will live, escape, and then go home. I repeat the sentence every twilight, in the small moment of peace before the thirst turns me into a fiend masquerading as a person. I say it is a tongue of a card, the language of vampires. I was surprised to learn that the others had to study it. I have no idea how the knowledge just slithered into my mind, and I would rather not ask. Joan knocks at my door shortly after the thirst hits. This time, I do not ask her in. Instead, I quickly send her away. I don one of my four outfits and get out. All my clothes look shabby and out of fashion while being functional. I look like the daughter of a family that fell on hard times. All of this to feed the image of this world as it exists in medicine's twisted psyche. They are not even comfortable, especially around my, uh, well, they're just too tight. The rotund form of Charlotte blocks the passage. Yes? Mistress Madison bids you to join her in the training room. It is time that you're made useful, Stray. You cannot just keep living off our generosity. Clan Lancaster certainly does welcome lowborns into its ranks. It is such a shame that some of us will never rise above the previous station, I reply. Her fat jowls quiver and fury at my rebuke. Ah, but her master must have loved Rubenesque woman and been short-sighted and deaf besides. Perhaps he lived in some sort of remote corner of Finland and she was the only human within a month of travel. I can think of no other explanation. Instead of leaving, her skull turns to a smirk and I brace myself for the next inanity to be born from her adult brain. The mistress will instruct you in the way of battle. Perhaps a correction will force some manners into you. And perhaps I'll need a partner to practice, I insinuate. I smile. I am thirsty and the stupid sours in my way. Let her see the fangs. Let her remember what my vampiric siblings are famous for. She flinches and steps back when I pass her. I may be weak, like all fledglings, but she is even weaker. She has a dreg at the bottom of the barrel. I will make every encounter a slap to her pride until she learns to leave me be. The Lancaster training room is on the first floor. If there is a basement, I've never seen it. Millicent is waiting. She is dressed in a strange outfit that bridges a gap between travel dress and armor. She is also holding a fencing sword. Sophie is already sitting on the side and Charlotte enters shortly after me. No humans. 
This is not very auspicious. If Melison invited spectators, it means that she intends to humiliate me. She gives me a training sword and demonstrates the proper handling and some basic moves while the two clueless twits spawn over her grace and elegance. Still no humans. I am so thirsty. I return my attention to the little princess. Watching her reminds me of Jimena's comment at the Lancaster clan. She mentioned their lack of prowess on the field of the battle, and I can tell from comparing the two women that it is accurate. Medicine may have had some formal training, but she is no master. Her movements are too mechanical. She lacks a deadly grace and a seamless ease of the caddis squire. Jermina had made every demonstration natural and effortless. After a while, she orders me to copy her gestures, and I do my best to learn. This is the most constructive activity I've taken part of in since reaching this den of depravity. No amount of poorly veiled insults will ruin my enjoyment. The physicality of the activity even manages to distract me from the thirst. Since I am not talking or thinking, life is simple. I lunge, I cut, I move. I let my body move, and the monster within guide me. It already knows how to do it. I have but to listen and follow. Well, your posture is still a bit awkward, but I suppose that's not to be expected from the likes of you. It seems my enjoyment was too obvious. We shall now start with a light spa and today's most important lesson. Ah, it is time for the inevitable humiliation. I just hope it'll be brief and not too painful. Melison returns an engraved glove of strange design. It is pretty enough to wear to a ball, I suppose, yet the amount of metal involved makes it look like some kind of night gauntlet. Now, attack me, she says with supreme confidence. Should I go faster, I'll make me even more thirsty. In the end, my pride will not allow me to roll over and grant her an easy triumph. I move. When I reach her, she slips her gauntlet hand and speaks calmly. Blast. I dodge left. Something smacks against my waist and leg. I am sent flying and spinning. How? I smack against the weapon rack. Steel beams punch my side and I collapse to the floor. My head spinning and the pain clouds my mind. It hurts. I fight this one. Cannot consume. Too strong door out prey. And that is why no matter your efforts, you will never be able to surpass me, Irene. You were taken from mundane stock. You were never a warrior. You were at best a glorified peasant. I was chosen from a noble mage family and spawned by Lady Lancaster herself. No amount of time and no personal efforts will ever bridge that gap. The sooner you accept this, the better. Mage? Yes. A mage, you are still an ignorant little thing, but don't worry, I'll let you witness my ascension so long as you remember your place. I need the sweet nectar now, need it, need it, need it. The red-haired woman sees something in my face and grabs my neck. She takes me out. I do not resist this time. She is leading me to blood. I know it. We reach a black-haired woman, cute, delicious smell of terror. She knows. I smile. Tears. Beautiful. Wait. No, I need to remember. A log cabin. Maybe not this time. Maybe this time I can just let myself go. Joan. No, this is a trick. The red-haired woman hurt me. I sit 
in the log cabin. Outside, the wind rustles and the sugar canes and carries the smell of wet earth. I am safe. This is a good place. My name is a rain, and Mellison is a trollop. Something is thumping. The rhythm is too fast, and uh, I pull out and lick the wound clean. Joan is unconscious and white as a sheet, but it looks like I managed to stop in time. I will not give that harlot any satisfaction. If I kill cattle, it will be because I decide it. Ah, finally, under my guidance, it appears that your self-control has improved. Even the spawn of the devourer can account for something if they are guided by a stern hand. It occurs to me that her entire misbegotten farce of a clan is so twisted that she might actually mean it. In a few decades, I shall attempt to revisit the question while skinning her alive with a rusty letter opener. And now you can finally repay us for our kindness. Ah, yes, I should show my appreciation for the precious gifts, the glorified wardrobe they call a bedroom, and all four of my outfits. I follow medicine to the entrance. Apparently, twenty minutes of training qualifies me for a soldier role. I spent as much time listening to Papa before he would even let me hold an unloaded pistol. My mind wanders, and I wonder how my family is doing. They must think me dead. I remember waking up in the hospital after the, uh, after the, uh, first night. I was too much pain to remember much, and I think Father was there. Then that man took me from the room and dragged me to the basement. I died there. On the third night, I push back the unwanted memories. If they see me again, they will know. There was too much damage. I would have to be born with scars my whole life. Should I even attempt it? I must. I want closure. I need to say farewell to what I used to be. Very human arraigns hopes and plans and grieve. We reach the main hall and turn left to what I know is Boudouin's office. I know he is mortal, but he is not cattle. I smell Lady Moore on him. You will assist Boudouin in whatever he sees fit. I'm a busy woman and shall return with more worthwhile pursuits while you run his errands. She turns around and leaves. Curious. I knock on the door and a bored voice bids me come in. I close the door behind me and catch Boudouin staring at my backside as I turn around. I hear softly, which is enough to remind him that I do not play. Yes, what do you want with old Boudouin? His accent is quite strange and I cannot place it, even after hearing English spoken in Acadian and Choctaw mouths. I was sent to assist you. I do not want help from a fledgling of less than a year. This will require a delicate hand. Lady Morisal said I could have medicine for this task. I need to add a sloth to medicine's long list of flaws. She did mention not wanting to run your errands. Is that so? Well, you tell her to get back here, lest I tell the lady, huh? Of course, Boudouin, I shall convey your message. No, wait. He says as my hand grasps the handle. He sighs and pinches the bridge of his nose. Boudouin's office says a lot about the man himself. I am suitably impressed by the organized stacks of documents, the cleanliness and the stress on function over form. Under these appearance of a perverted and deviant highwayman, he is in fact a perverted and deviant businessman, which is infinitely more dangerous. Perhaps you will do... I can understand the pain of forcing the little princess to do anything productive. 
What is it that you need? I ask of him. The man sits back in his comfortable chair. A young rogue by the name of Andre Vulmain has the audacity of taking over one of our warehouses. Yesterday, he and his merry band broke in and set the camp amongst the crates of our finest china. But Wan waits to see if I react. I gesture for him to continue. If he needed medicine, it means that the situation needs to be resolved with a scalpel, not a hammer. Normally, I would sick the boys on them and be done with it. Unfortunately, Volmain is the son of two rather important people, and kidding him would sour our professional relationships. I assume that they cannot rein him in. Unfortunately, Volmain is at the age where one rebels against authority. Due to his lineage, he believes himself untouchable and flaunts his status to all that would listen. Worse, he attracted a gathering of children from good families, and any bloodbath could impact our bottom line for years to come. You need someone to convince them that get out without resorting to violence. Not too much violence, at least. He is a quick to anger, and your uh, fellow immortals tend to be uh, heavy-handed. I need a delicate touch. I also need to send a clear warning. We simply cannot be trodden upon. That is why I cannot bribe him. This will require a delicate balance. And now you know why old Bedouin is troubled, lass. What can an artist like me do without proper agents to carry out my will? I scoff. I'm willing to try, but I require something in exchange. The cunning negotiator's eyes are suddenly turned cold. And what would that be? Only general questions about the world. Despite my lessons, there is still much for me to learn. And Melisange chose some materials as not to your liking. Let me guess, you know everything about the clan Lancaster's noble history. Since the War of the Two Roses, decade by decade. He laughs softly. Very well, as long as it is nothing too serious, you would not try to turn on old Bedouin now, would you? Of course not. I smile. He swallows nervously. I believe I shall never tire of the effect of the eight fangs have on people. Before we leave, there is a small matter of security. I'm sure you understand. I am immediately wary. It will require you to wear this while we're outside. He stands up and walks to the safe. A moment later, he retrieves a richly decorated bracer from it. It looks like a jewelry that gypsies would wear, all gold and bright colored. What is it? A tracking object linked to Lady Moore herself. Magic? Yes. Should you try anything that could damage me or the clan, she will be able to track you and disable you. That means our reputation, too. And don't you try remove it. Better people than you have failed. I measure my desires to get out of this filthy den against my unwillingness to be a chained dog. Eventually, I choose to preserve my sanity over my dignity. Besides, if it comes to that, I may be able to chop off my arm and reattach it later. I... Am that desperate? The bracer is rigid against my skin, and I can feel something dormant in the pattern of gold and stones that decorate it. Let us be gone. End of chapter. Chapter 8. Outside. We step outside, and something stops me in my tracks. The night, in all its glory... The oppressive heat of the deep southern summer days have cooled down a bit. Life in all its forms have come out to enjoy the small respite. A smell water of the sea and the marshes, life in the trees and the scent of humanity. 
wood smoke and the cooking meats, the alcohol, the sweat under that, all this vitality. I hear people and hunting things, insects and some distant music, men and women dancing, drinking and singing their worries away. Tomorrow, news of capricious floods, devastating fields and villages may come, as they do every summer, for now they forget. I look at the many roofs and the burning lamps, and above it, the sky. There are so many colors, so many patterns that I had never noticed before. The Milky Way slashes out the sky like a thrown brush on an irate painter. At the center of the incredible vista looms a strange eye I first saw. Just look at it, it stares right back, and I can once again feel the alien presence. It does not threaten me, nor promises, it does not even judge, it just watches quietly. Perhaps I have somewhat come to terms with that new nature, because I find it soothing, even if the ever-present thirst takes a place in the background. An instant pull of my sleeve wakes me from my reverie. I expected anger from Boudouin, but he only displays patient amusement. I always wondered how your kind sees it. You all look like it contains a Fabergé egg or a tarantula. You know of what we see. The eye. Aye. Lady Moore mentioned it. She calls it the demon's gaze. Ah, it's not a demon. It's more like a silent watcher. Boudouin flinches. What? Lord Narari used the exact same term. I guess his blood runs true, huh? He sighs. They'd say that every vampire looks upon it sees the eye staring at them. Scary stuff, he eh? I have nothing to reply to that. We walk towards the docks and pass the brand new Spanish buildings around the Vaux-Chere. The bells in the St. Louis Cathedral grates my ears. It is midnight. Is something the matter, Rain? I walked here not a month ago, in the exact same street. Ah, I forgot I am not used to walking with one so young. We'll have to adapt, lest you be recognized. You make it sound like you're an old man. As it turns out, he is. With one as Lady Moore's human servant. They are bound together, and so long as she lives, so does he. Only masters can bind someone so... I learn more useful facts from him in thirty minutes than I ever did from that slovenly trollop. Clan Lancaster rules most of the English part of New Orleans, while Clan Econ wormed its way into the Creole population. Clan Cadiz has only a nominal presence. The Roland are all in Baton Rouge. What is left of them is, anyway. Clan Lancaster is renowned for its business acumen and recruits heavily from mage families, with whom they are constantly at war. Clan Lancaster makes good money from the trade of slaves and foodstuffs. Most of the profits are paid as a tithe to the main house in England. I'm sure that that vexes Lady Moore to no end. Mages are another part of the magical population. Boudouin informs me that we will give more of a detailed explanation of the global magic community if I prove myself a trusted associate. He knows much about vampires. Fletchlings apparently need more blood to function. Physical exertion consumes a tremendous amount of energy and is discouraged during the first two years. In fact, it appears that fledglings need to be reared for quite some time before they are able to enter society once more. The youngest of us is either feral or apathetic. There is a no in between. 
I seem to be an exception, though I'm not sure why. Master is not known for siring spawns of notable intellect. Boudouin learned about my confrontation with Jimena's training room, and I'm quite fast for a newborn, but also very fragile and physically weak. This is good to know. Master is very old, and I'd hoped that it would make me stronger, but it seems life does not work that way. Vampires dislike firearms, bows, and crossbows, because those are peasant weapons. Many powerful vampires predate the use of gunpowder. This is yet another sign of profound arrogance and imbecility to me, until I remember Master and Gaspard moving faster than I could perceive. Perhaps this makes use of the ranged weapons pointless amongst us. I still see no reason not to use it on humans. Speaking of humans, the battle priests are members of the Order of Gabriel. They are dedicated to the extermination of all magical beings. They also despise the Irish, Mexican, the poor, and the woman. Truly a charming lot. Quickly, we reach a warehouse, and I halt with wine before we come in sight. Those streets are silent, but full of laughter coming in from our destination. I drag him from the nearby alley and approach the target from the side. It looks more like a barn than anything else. It is made from a dark wood that smells faintly of rot and is large enough to hide a sloop. I move my befuddled companion towards the entrance, but stop before turning the corner and getting a view of the door. This is where the laughter is the loudest. I track the ray of light to a small hole in the plank. It's too small to see through a rain, says Boudoir with derision. I stare him in the eye, place my clawed index against the opening, and push. The damaged wood bends and breaks under the sharp nail, and my finger digs completely. A raucous conversation masks the small noise I make. I did not break eye contact. Boudoir pales a bit, even though he must have seen more impressive displays of strength during his many years of service. I successfully hide my relief that the wood yielded. It would have been quite embarrassing otherwise. I look in, dull oil lamps cast a yellow glaze upon the dozen men and women in the midst of a drunken revel. They are all young and flushed with heat and vitality. The girls show a bit too much skin and their parents would allow. The men's smiles have a wolfish quality. The thirst wakes up from its slumber. Greedy thing, you have already been fed once tonight. Like a princeling on his throne, a dashing young man in an open leather vest, brown pants, and boots sits at the forefront. He has black hair, an opera pirate beard, and dreamy gray eyes. He currently holds his lap a cute blonde woman in trousers whose generous bust is revealed by an ample cleavage. A tall and strong-bearded man stands close to the wary eye on the door. There is no doubt in my mind that the rackish lad is Mr. Villamain, the person that I have to convince. His pretentious mannerisms and cocksure air strike a nerve in me, and I take an instant dislike to him. I also discover another interesting fact about myself. While I used to judge group dynamics around power play and clicks, I notice now it is entirely focused on hunting. This is a herd. It is a dominant male, a dominant female, and a powerful beta. I see who will fight and who will flee, and I see that I can isolate easily and who is the easiest prey. 
The runt of the group is a mousy girl with heavy glasses who stares fixedly at a dear Andre and what Papa could call a douce-yaxter cabratmer d'amour, eyes of a toad dying of love. Poor thing. I know better than most what infatuation can do when one's chosen heart is the blackest tar. But one, find out who I cannot touch. With his help, I identify three men and two women whose disappearance would cause an uproar. Andre's second and the blonde woman are not amongst them. Excellent. A plan starts to take form. How much time do I have? Until the next delivery arrives, that would be three days from now. That should be more than enough, I reply and walk to the doors. There is no sentry outside, which does not surprise me. Andre is quite confident in the protection of his name grants him. I open the door in silence and enter peacefully. Initially believed that this princeling had chosen this place because he wanted to ransom its contents, but I may have overestimated him. The smell of overwrought sex is pungent in here. The dark corners of the warehouse provided the group with a long-awaited intimacy. I am confident that some of the ladies present will regret the decisions in a few months when the consequences grow too big to be hidden from their parents. The bearded man is the first to see me and takes out a cudgel, only to stop in his tracks when he notices my appearance. Gradually, the assembly falls silent as they realize the presence of an intruder until Andre is forced to turn his attention away from the bronze woman's left nipple to address the new development. The hussy had the audacity to look at me with rage as she readjusted her top, furious about the interruption. Well, 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 says the imbecile as the man chuckles. Are you lost, sweet thing? No, you are. This is a warehouse, not a club. Anger flashes in the man's eye. Would you kindly leave? My employer needs this place. The blonde woman whispers something in the ear with a sadistic smile, and he nods. Some of the boys start cheering and complimenting my backside. The temptation to shred them all and bathe in the viscera grows by the minute, yet I successfully resist. Why don't you stay a while and play a few games? Then we will consider your proposal. I will take this as a no and shall return tomorrow to see if you have changed your mind. I turn around and leave. Not so fast. I reach the door. Hey, you trollop. George, get her. When George steps out, I'm already gone. Now they know what this is. I just need to hand out the punishment. So, what did you learn today, little sister? I sip slowly at the glass of water and try my best to ignore the cookie jar atop the kitchen countertop. The familiar room is bathed in a reddish light of late afternoon. A stew slowly boils in the hearth. We learned about anatomy and the various functions of organs. Big brother, as Schiller scoffs, and do women need to know such things? Women produce superior nurses and doctors. Nonsense. Well, I remember when cousin Sylvie lost her water in the carriage mantelfort, and only one of us panicked. No? All right. All right, I guess. So, tell me about organs. Well, there is an example. Hmm, the liver. It cleanses the blood and it produces bile, which is necessary for digestion. Is that so? And where is the liver situated? It's, um, in the chest, right side, around here. I reply, pointing my finger to the middle of my chest and to the right. <laughs> no, a bit higher. Well, let's find it together. Wait, what? 
I'm bound, spread eagle, on the table, my chest bare. What's happening? A chiller is approaching me with a sharpened pick. Wait! No! Please don't, chiller. It's for your own good, sister. That you'll remember for sure. There it is. Ah! There, we found it on the first try. Now, if you want to reach above your station to become a doctor, you can. No! Please stop. It hurts. Ah, yes, but it will not kill you, as you are an abomination now. Good news, sister. And now, the pancreas. There. Ah! No! No, please, please, no! I take a deep breath and release it. What an unpleasant nightmare. My name is a rain. I am my own. I will live and I will go home. I take another calming breath as the phantom pain and cold blades in my stomach make me wince. I may no longer sweat, nor does my skin peel, but there is still the scent to my body. It is not entirely unpleasant. I suppose, but I'll have to take a bath later when I return from the warehouse. Yesterday was strangely gratifying. I'm already dressed when a new servant knocks on my door. Joe is resting, and this one lacks courage. I suppose I can hardly blame her from when I almost killed her predecessor. I know where I need to go. You may leave. I walk to the back of the property and pens. There are a few isolated cages where the Lancaster stow their problematic cattle. Good evening, Blanche. M- Mistress Rain, please let me out of here. I-, I-, I promise I won't. I bring the blonde woman closer to me and hug her tight. After a night of debauchery with the princeling and a day out in the sweltering heat, she smells quite ripe. Her trousers are sticky with perspiration. I lick the two white scars on her neck, and she shivers with pleasure. I bite. I did not truly taste her yesterday, only marked her. It takes all of my self-control not to kill her on the spot. It would be so easy. I wouldn't even be blamed. Something stops me. A sense of ownership. Blanche is my first cattle, or at least she will be after a few more bites. It would just feel... Wasteful. I lick the wound clean, and the thirst recedes into the background of my mind, like a patient tiger. Of course, Blanche, you know I only do this for your own good. Yes, mistress. I'm so sorry. We were just just, just playing. I'll tell Andrea that he will understand. He's a good man. After you explain the situation to him, he will surely leave. Naturally, I reply, smiling. I let my captive clean herself a bit in a water barrel, as she wouldn't want to be stopped by militia simply because the smell. Before we set out, I stopped by Bidouan's office. Come in. Ah, a rain. How may I assist? First, you could stop staring at my bottom every time I turn to close the door. I fear it's too late for me to amend my behavior, young one. You old pervert. In any case, I should return to the warehouse tonight and have them leave. What if they refuse? Nay, will not. Bidouan raises a dubious brow, but gives me the leave to go, as well as a small life I requested. I walk through the streets of New Orleans in a simple dress and a conservative hat, courtesy of Bidouan. I also carry a bracer and a leather satchel. The cunning man mentioned it yesterday as we walked back. He was right. Clothes and behavior really allow one to blend in. I changed the way I walked to appear less confident by slightly bending my back, lowering my head and affecting a subdued expression. 
Soon, I fade into the background, just another maid on an errand, nothing to see and no one to notice. It is a different sort of magic, the art of the street artists and conmen, the tricks of the mind. I find them exhilarating. We reach the warehouse quickly. There is no merriment tonight. The place is deadly silent, but not deserted. Andre is living in an illusion of his own making. His parents are feared and protect him. His friends are rich and admire him. Daughters of respectable families fall for his wealth and good looks. He is living the life. Yesterday he founded the seat of his power in some fat merchant's warehouse. In his mind, they would have fun for a while and then leave after being paid, preferably before the place turns to rank. The first step towards the creation of his own criminal empire, perhaps. Then I came. Blanche stepped out at some point during the night to attend to some natural needs. With George keeping an eye out, I took him out with a small bite and kidnapped the girl. Bites make everyone pliable, if only for a while. I knock on the door and receive no answer. I can smell the people inside. They expect me to return after yesterday's message. I need them out. Bending off an ambush at the stage would be tedious. Mistress, I'm sorry, Blanche. I step back from the gate and grab her, and then I break one of her fingers. What a beautiful voice that she has. As expected, the door bursts open, and what is left of the gang spills out in the streets with Andre at the head. Only five of them left, all men. This is truly pathetic. I force Blanche to her knees and grab her hair while she nurses her hand. Her quiet sobs are the only thing disturbing the silence. I appreciate the moment. I find it fascinating that real life would match fiction so deliciously. Here we stand at the end of Act 3. The male lead bristles with rage while his loved one bemoans her fate. The trusty second's eyes grow wide at the sight of me. The seeds of a plot are ready to germinate in their battered group, ready to implode. I shiver in pleasure. I am the playwright, and I already know how it all ends with my victory. Release her immediately, or else. Yesterday, they would have rushed me with their eyes full of bloodlust. Tonight, they are wary and broken. I took out the princess. She sits on the ground in front of me in defeat, and after one day of search, they failed to find her, to rescue her. Hours of rageful and enthusiastic inquiries, then the feeling of powerlessness. Reality came knocking, and they didn't like it. They already suffered the casualties of those who were there for the guilty pleasures and banter, but fine street fighting and kidnappings too, pedestrian... It's already over. Before Andre takes a step forward, I remove the knife from my satchel and apply the blade against Blanche's tendered neck, hard enough to draw blood. No, mistress, please, I beg of you. It is too much for one remaining noble. He drops his saber and runs away. This leaves Andre, George, and two henchmen. Laughable. You'll pay for this, you harlot. You have no idea who you are messing with. Andre Villemain, son of Gunther Villemain, and Alice Winthrop. But what? We know who you are, we know who your parents are, and we know what you have been up to. You came here high on pride and arrogance, thinking yourself untouchable. You thought wrong. Ah, 
But before we continue this, here's a private conversation. The two of you, leave us. The two henchmen look at each other and decide that it is not worth it. Now, only George and Andre remain. If you know my parents, then you should know that you have messed with the wrong man. Your parents disavowed your actions, Andre. They will not lift a finger. Even you are not worth a war with us. You lie! As long as you draw breath, Andre, they will not retaliate. This means that everything you own and everyone you know is fair game. Starting with Blanchier. I move the knife just enough to elicit a cry of pain. No! Please wait, wait, wait. I understand, all right. Let us all calm down. I'll do it. I'll just leave. I'll, I'll even compensate you for the damages. Just, just please, please let her go. Oh, he cares more than I expected. A reasonable proposal. Sadly, it will not suffice. George? Yes? I do uh, something. It is like drawing on a rope that is made of beads. The harder I pull, the more afraid my control grows. Still, a link is made. The bites I made yesterday sank something into their souls, and now I have limited control over them. For Andre's own good, bring him to me. But what? Very well, mistress. George punches Andre, who collapses to the ground like a doll with its strings cut. He takes the man in a gentle hold and brings him closer. I... Can feel the fight me, but my request is reasonable so far, and George is a natural follower. The cold part of me enjoys itself, and I finally understand those Lancaster inbred. This is entertaining. Understand, young Andre, that there is more to the night than you can ever imagine. We can tolerate jaw aids and brush statements, but this time you went too far. I'm gonna have to leave you with a reminder. I placed the tip of the blade against the edge of his eye socket and coughed downwards. This will scar nicely, and since I am feeling generous, I even let him keep his eye. Wait! Wait! What are you doing? No! No! After I am finished, I calmly pocket the blade and stand up. And with this, we are done, I say as he sobs and grabs his coughed cheek. My hold on George just broke, and Blanche's loyalty is tenuous despite two bites. If I go any further, I will have to shed more blood than I planned. I expect this place to be cleared out tonight. Farewell. I walk away. I can feel the tether that binds the two humans to me evaporate like morning dew with a symbolic gesture. I do not want to keep them with me, for the simple reason that they will be used as leverage by medicine and the others. Any possession, I gather, must remain hidden, or it must be intangible, like status. I will not let her use them against me. As soon as I'm out of view, I hurry to a place where Boudouin and I first spied on the warehouse. You might as well come out. Smiling, the man himself walks out of the recesses with his arms raised in mock surrender. I think a human could have passed him by a thousand times without ever noticing him. I hope you do not take this as a sign of distrust. I sneer. And if I had turned to a street red, Boudouin, what would you have done? Scream for the... I gasp as I am interrupted by a sudden and violent pain. It shakes my bones and rattles my teeth and leaves me trembling with a brief instant. What happened? I am sorry, Arane, he said as he shows a golden band around his wrist. 
The tracking bracer you can also be used to inflict pain and disable its victim. And before you use the vampiric electricity of yours, know that the bracer will punish you should you touch me. I hissed softly. What did I expect? That the clan full of liars and scoundrels would let me out of their house without any means to control me. Do not be too cross, little one. I will make it up to you. How? Before we begin, I have to ask, why did you wait one day? Why the kidnapping? You want to know the reason behind my plans? Yes, I was assuming that you are a potential long-term associate. I need someone to replace Ogotai. If only temporarily. Harold and Wilburn are ill-suited to tasks that require brain. As Lady Moore's human servant, I can shield you from most of Melison's petty vengeance should you take that role. But one's expression turns to scorn at the mention of the other vampires. I am reminded that under the, his unsavory appearance, he hides a keen intellect, as also unsavory. I have the mistress's trust when running the day-to-day affairs, so long as I guarantee that you are better used solving problems than entertaining that arrogant twit. She will leave you be. I consider his words for a moment. Getting out means that the cadets can contact me more easily than when the time comes. Can you truly protect me from medicine? She does not strike me as one who easily admits defeat. She could just abuse you until you change your mind. When you realized I hurt you, how close were you to striking me down? I, uh, I, um... But what is right, the predatory part of me, the part that always pushes me to violence, was strangely silent. Vampires do not attack human servants directly unless they are desperate or unhinged. It is a rule that is engraved in your kind's minds from the day that you wake up again. Your very instincts will try and stop you. He is right. I was not tempted to retaliate. How tainted has my mind become? Is it still even my own? Medicine shall not harm me. She knows the price of annoying the mistress too much. Now, rain. do we have an understanding? I shall not do anything that will rob me of the little dignity I've left. I hope that we are clear on this, Boudouin. Of course, Serene, he smirks. I would not force you to turn tricks. I have other agents for that. I hiss again, but my heart is not in it. Well, I sigh. It costs me little to explain my actions. This group was fractured from the start. The leader had three associates with poor background. The rest were scions of affluent families playing rogue. It was easy to make them confront the reality of the night. After that, the mood was ruined, so to speak, and I just had to pick up the pieces. I see, and you judged the best way to achieve this, to collapse their house of gods, was to abduct one of their members. Perhaps not the best, but certainly the most expedient. Few things match kidnapping as a wake-up call, not to mention that I wanted a snack. He laughs with abandon, and then, walk with me. As we reach the brighter lights around the Vokskere, Baudouin starts in a soft voice. You are nothing like I expected, you know. How so? I've seen many fledglings being reborn to this world. Most start off as mindless beasts, barely more than automatons. It is only after some time that they regain some semblance of humanity. You started as your old self and are now becoming more and more like a vampire. Surely, my circumstances are not unique. They are not, however, it is quite rare. I cannot think of anyone who is quite so, uh, alive as you were when I first saw you. 
I'd prefer not to be reminded of this moment. He chuckles. There is also the issue of you being so weak. Lord Narari managed to foster spawns that would go toe-to-toe with night squads with only a few years. Give me some time. He shakes his head. No, rain. I can already tell that you will not match this development speed. You are faster than most fledglings and some courtiers, but your strength is almost human. I wonder how I can become more powerful. If I could be fast enough to dodge Melisande's dark powers, then grab her by the ankle and... Uh, I spend some time imagining the red-haired harridan slamming into walls until we reach the outskirts of the city. I then realize something. But one, yes, you said you used Ogotai for this kind of work. Indeed, his betrayal has caused quite a few problems, as you can imagine. Did you expect his treachery? No... I was stupefied when he found his spine. You see, Ogotai is centuries old. He has suffered abuse at the hands of the Lancasters for longer than I was alive. Perhaps it was Melisande that sent him over the edge. But one's laugh caused a few late revelers to turn. Ah, uh, yes, uh, I can believe that. You see, Ogotai was part of the horde of warriors from the east who invaded Hungary. They made a mistake of hunting a local lord, and the vengeance was what you guessed. Ogotai lacked something. He has never reached the rank of master, and he never will, if he still lives. Can lords figure out the best candidates for new spawns? If some do, they keep it a secret. Some clans heavily recruit majors as they keep some of their powers. But for the rest, I do not know. I do not know what makes one vampire much better than another. I see. When we reach the house, a servant hurries inside, and a few moments later, Millicent gets to the door like a devil out of the box. It occurs to me that I failed to warn her that I would not attend her circus act of a lesson. Oops. She and Boudoir stare at each other, and a silent message must have passed, for soon Millicent retreats as the door shuts. I catch a glimpse of her face. It is twisted with the blackest of rage. Your move, witch... End of chapter. Chapter 9. A Casual Visit A leafy canopy covers the forest grounds in shadows. I dart around trunks as large as carriages, doing my best to avoid sunlight that stabs through here and there. The coverage is not perfect and my skin is already covered in blisters. The cruel rays go straight through clothes as if they were not there. Ah! I scream and hiss, and yet another gust of wind moves branches, and I am exposed to the cruel touch. You should give up. You are only delaying the inevitable. I want to make him shut up, but he stands in the light, mocking me. Here, he looks human and regal with his thick brown beard and noble posture, a true king of old. Your peers reject you, humans reject you, even the sun itself wants you gone from this world. I dodge and sprint. Time is running out. The sun is already going down. The shadows lengthen. I nail that sticks out gets nailed down, after all. You are only prolonging your suffering. I need to keep going. I just have to reach the house. I will be safe inside. You think your family will welcome you, idiot? You are not a rain, though you stole her name for yourself. She died that night, alone and broken. You are just a final insult to her memory. You lie! I am me. 
How can you be so sure? Have you seen yourself in the mirror? The sun is closing to the horizon, but I will never survive to twilight. The forest parts to expose me. At a last moment, I die behind a tree and feel the bark on my back. The murderous rays start to twist around the trunk, and I yell when they reach the edge of my arm. You will forever be a pariah, a spawn, no matter how much you beg and bow. I start screaming, several voices, chorus calling me an outsider, then there is only a fiery death. I awake quickly and repeat my now familiar sentence. I've been here for two months. Two months of playing thug and errand girl, and I'm building a bit of a reputation. I wonder why I have so many nightmares, and if the others do as well. Unfortunately, I would sooner stab myself in the foot with a rusty meat skewer than share this detail with anyone here. My questions will therefore remain unanswered for now. The phantom pain coursing through my body ruins my meditation. I wish to cry, but this is a function of the body that I find myself unable to force. I endure the memory of burning to a crisp for only a minute before it was replaced by a more powerful imperative. I wonder if older vampires treat the thirst as an old friend, or if they are all driven mad by it. Boudoir confirmed that fledglings consume more, especially the very young ones. I can only hope that I maintain a healthy self-control, at least long enough to grow out of infancy. Like every night, I take the time to bathe and dress properly. I battle the thirst with every bit of self-control I can muster to take the time to care for myself and my appearance. I even bought a comb. After a quick detour by the cages, I reach Boudouin's office. Ah, a rain, come in, come in. Good evening, I'm ready for the meeting. Ah, yes. Well, unfortunately, you will not be attending. I freeze immediately. During my time here, I took my role as a spy quite seriously. I have listed all their warehouses, their banks, their business partners, every key I lie, every lie and weakness that I have religiously catalogued. A sentence overheard, a confidential document left lying around, an unexpected visit, every activity is an opportunity to discover more. I have made reports that I have hidden well. If they fall into the hands of the cadders, they will be able to strike those degenerates down with a deadly accuracy. Hit them where it hurts the most, their pride and their wallets. As Boudouin discovered my stratagems, I thought I was careful. I even have an escape kit ready, hidden under the destroyed belfry of a derelict church. I found the irony delicious. Boudouin eyes me nervously. He does not know. He assumes I am mortally offended. This is not a punishment. In fact, I have something of a reward for you. Today we had a situation. One of our strumpets made an unfortunate decision to laugh at a customer's privates. Under Law Street? No. On Red Vale, unfortunately. Ah. This was Lancaster's high-end brothel, and that means the offended party is rich and powerful. The issue is that the man, a Simon Henley, took justice on his own hands and carved her up. That will not do. He is in the estate now, with half a dozen guards. Do you expect me to go in there and intimidate him? No, Rain. I expect you to kill him. He made some very public statements and demanded reparations. I cannot let this stand. 
How do you want this done? Do what you want. I'll burn down the house when you're finished. The militia knows to avoid the place tonight. And I get a gun this time. No, rain. my opinion hasn't changed. We do not use guns. Neanderthals, I harumph. Then make for the exit. Then I'll be on my way. Do enjoy yourself. I exit the office. My eyes are inevitably drawn by a figure going down the stairs. Lady Moore does not belong here. This land is young and rackish. Its wealth is stolen from the native tribes and torn from the earth by labor of countless slaves, brought here against their wills and floating coffins. It is no place for complicated intrigue and veiled threats. At least, not yet. Her appearance reflects this. Even her dress is too warm for the suffocating weather. She ignores me and soon crosses the threshold. Following my smug medicine and Lambert the Everboard, they will attend the meeting with the representative of Clan Ekin about some fresh market issue. I should have been there as muscle. It would have been an opportunity to meet them and perhaps know that the Caddis have been up to. Well, it was always next time. I go back to my room and get changed and don on a protective attire with a shawl to hide my shoulders. Now I look like a streetwalker. If Papa could see me now. No, I must wear this armor. My appearance is both a weapon and bait. Simon Henley is some reparation from a bordello, and this is what he'll see. A suitable emissary. I'll preserve my dignity according to my own rules, and clothes are no longer a concern. I leave the house with a bracer and a heavy bag, keeping it well lit streets. I have enough stashed away to run for a while with what I picked up during my errands. The problem is that I would be hunted down and eliminated even without the bracer. I need a clean escape. Since we are going into an expensive side of town and a woman alone would draw unneeded attention, a carriage has been made available. As we drive on, I am for once thankful for my cold body. Without it, the enclosed space would have been stifling. After a quarter of an hour also, we stop in front of the manor when the carriage leaves. The Victorian-style house is without any embellishments, but the garden is impeccably maintained. Papa always said that understated signs of wealth are a mark of a good breeding, and I've trouble reconciling tasteful residence with the image of a man who would disfigure her strumpet because she laughed at his manhood. Perhaps this was built and maintained by his father. I crossed the deserted entrance and arrived in front of a pair of wooden doors. At the same time of night, there should be lights and servants about, but the place is suspiciously silent. I find myself growing wary. I knock on the door and it opens immediately. A rough-looking man with a scowl inspects me silently. I curtsy. They are expecting me, it seems. With a grunt, then the man invites me in. This is it. I could start killing right away, but something stops me. The guard is armed with a truncheon and no other visible weapon. He is no danger to me. Something else is. Just like vampires have a cold aura, I feel something bright and colorful, and it comes from deeper in the house. I am curious. What could it possibly be? I follow the guard into the modest ballroom covered with a plush carpet. Large windows adorn the wall opposite the entrance, and there is only one door, the one I came in from. 
On my left, a few seats are being gathered, and four hard men stop their game of cards and take a gander at the newcomer. On my right, next to the piano of a good make, stands the master of the house. He sits atop a leather throne that was brought here for this occasion. The flagon of spirits rests on a small coffee table at his side, and next to him stands a bodyguard who immediately captivates me. He is tall and muscular, with trimmed beard, and wears on him enough weapons to take over a small town. I count no less than two pistols and seven daggers at first glance. He even wears a helmet, indoors, like some uncouth savage. The colorful aura comes from him. Our eyes meet, and he gives me the most peculiar of smiles. Why don't you take a seat? asked Simon Hemley, pointing to the modest chair in front of him. He is dressed in an expensive shirt and jacket that do little to hide his gut. His pale skin is a worm flesh white of people who do not leave the house during the day. It is also covered in clammy perspiration. His grey eyes do not meet mine. He is scared out of his mind. Everything is wrong. The thug should be leering or indifferent, not wary. Henley should be smug and arrogant, not terrified. The last man does not belong here. My instincts and intellect unite in the firm belief that this is a trap. Worse, the bodyguard probably knows what I am and is convinced that he can take me on. I remember the followers of Gabriel assaulted the keep. They too had a plethora of arms and the training to use it. They did not have an aura. This man is a mage. If I take the seat, I am dead again. This will not happen. I step towards it and kick it into a pair. The mage easily dodges, but Henley takes it to the face and collapses with a muffled scream. I move back, and not one second too soon. Seal! A white light erupts from the circle where the chair used to be and misses me by a hair. The room erupts in chaos and yells. The mage takes out a gun and fires it at me. I finish my movement by falling on the floor. The bullet misses me. I end up at the feet of a stupefied guard. I stand up and claw his throat in one movement. A geyser of blood distracts the other three. His blood stinks. There is something wrong with it. I hiss and grab the second guard to use as a shield. An instant later, something bites into my side. What? I stare down in disbelief. There is a large gash on my waist. A dress is torn apart to reveal shredded flesh seeping dark red blood. The man I used as a shield screams, dying. The mage shot his own ally. Something pings on the floor and I instinctively look at it just as it detonates. A thunderous explosion and a white light blinds me, deafens me. I drop the man I to grab my maimed eyes. Hurt. Need to escape, can't see. Behind me, cover. I move backwards and grab the edge of the poker table. With a grunt, I flip it and jump behind. I move to the side as something rolls. Something bumps against me and falls. I find a shoulder, a throat. I slash it open. The blood smells wrong again. The bottle of wine that was on the table smells wrong too. Something they drank. I can hear better now that my eyes still hurt. There are windows. Escape. I grab the body and blindly rush to the wall. Can find, can break through. None of that. See you. 
Something bumps me again. It does not hurt, but it pushes me back with incredible strength. I crash against the table, and it breaks under me. The shards stab into my back. It hurts. So thirsty. Can't stay here. I crawl away from the mage. Waist hurt, back hurt, bleeding. Need blood. But it all smells wrong. Ah, I can finally see again. I turn myself as the throwing knife whistles past my shoulder and buries itself in the carpet. Finally, a decent weapon. I remove the shard of wood in my back. It did not go deep. The mage throws more daggers, and once more I use the bodies and the table to dodge and block. I grab one blade in each hand, and then I throw a third one at him. It pings against his armor. The man is still smiling. He unsheaths the saber and a short blade and rushes me. I manage to stand up and meet him in the middle of the room. I realize very shortly that it was a mistake. I may be faster than the mage, but in everything else, he has the advantage. He has a longer reach, and his technique is superior. He deflects my strikes with precise and conservative movements. I am completely outmatched. Soon I have a new long gash in my waist, and I drop the blade. I cannot move my hand. I am not healing at all, and I am so very thirsty. I cannot get out. The pain becomes too much. I have one last quick move in me, but after that, I shall be helpless. I have to make it out and count, and, um, what's that delicious smell? Blood! It comes from Henley. I need to... uh, Firewhip! A red snake twists around my useless hand. My flesh immediately starts to smolder. I scream in agony and lash out with the last knife I have. Fortunately, whatever made his blade so painful is also breaks the spell. I collapse on the ground, shrieking, Can't stay here, I need to move, but here it's so much! Ah, the backlash was nasty, you cunning witch! Oh, I must say, I'm rather disappointed. With all the talks about vampires being century-old apex predators, I was really looking forward to a good fight. Yet, here you are, a brute relying on a speed rather than technique. Sloppy and pathetic. Predator, he says. <laughs> yes, viable plan. Implement. Well, I guess I'll have to fight a knight next. Now, I was told that piercing the heart will incapacitate your kind. At least I can put that theory to the test. Yes, pray. Come closer. I dare say killing that werewolf turned out to be more... I move. I stay low, grab a knife and bury it behind the knee. A weak point. I'll spring up his back, grab around with my claws. Pulse! Something propels me backwards, and I smash into the coffee table and Henley's inanimate body. Ah, you witch! Ah, heal, heal, damn it! So delicious! You'll pay for this. I was gonna make it quick, but now I think I'll burn you alive. Ah, oh, crap, just you wait. I am feeding from Henley my back to the mage when something happens. I can feel all my fangs pull. The strength I draw multiplies tenfold, a hundredfold. This time there is no bliss. This time there is only life and the strength I need to survive. This time I do not feed. I devour. It takes less than four seconds for Henley to die. 
As the last of his life force is torn away from his body, I feel the temporary burst of power. The pain is still there, as is the thirst, it just does not matter so much anymore. So this man is a hunter, he thinks I'm game. I am no beast, I am a vampire. I pull myself up and find the mage applying bandages to his wounded leg. His disbelief turns to horror at the sight of my face, blood still dripping. I give a ghastly smile. Then I throw the corpse at him. I put my hips into it and the body flies. The mage swears and ducks. I jump and fly with claws forward. I crash against him and send him back on his back. I claw and lash trying to reach his face. His armored braces stand in the way, but manage to score hits in the unprotected places. Sheer, none of that. I use one hand to push both of his arms towards me and stab a finger in his cheek. I rake his face. Blood flows, still smells wrong. I am weakening. I can feel him struggling to get something. I can't fight much longer. My strength is already waning. He pulls something that roars. I feel cold punching through my stomach. I ignore the armed hand and deflect the other and put one thumb against his eye and push. With a ghastly crunch, the eye pops and I bury my fingers to the hilt in his skull. Fluid splurts on my face. The blood in them is... uh, It smells horrible, but there is so much power in there. It is fading quickly. I bite deep and take a swallow. The blood is potent. It is also laced with something that ravages my throat. The balance is barely in favor of the blood. I punch his face once, twice, three times. The pain catches up to me and I collapse on the mangled corpse. Everything hurts and I have not felt this bad since my death. Then all beatings fade. I feel strange. Pain is a distant thing and so is the thirst. I expect it to turn into a ravening beast, but it also appears that I am, in fact, sated. Wounded, but sated. I can only draw strength from the red nectar so fast. The edge of my vision is growing darker, and I remember. This is what dying feels like back when it happened the first time. The sensation is slipping of letting go. Nom de Dieu, c'est un Ah, I remember now. We only killed three of the four gods, the mage and I. Monster! Demon! The last one must have cowered in some corner. I do not blame him. He is growing a spine now, though. He took a knife and is getting closer. I absolutely cannot move. I am so cold. The slumber calls me. I could just close my eyes and forget... And yet, dying once is once-in-a-lifetime experience. Well, twice, in my case. I would rather not miss it. And now somebody knocks on the ballroom door. A guard squeals and jumps like a scalded maid. <laughs> the black woman walks in, a vampire. She is dressed in leather pants and a tight white shirt. How unladylike. Although, to be fair, she is not bearing her midriff to the world like I am. Well, color me impressed, she says with a fanged smile. End of chapter. Chapter 10. No rest for the wicked. Everything about the woman is predatory. Her walk, her posture, her mouth, they all speak of danger, but also of elegance. I am convinced that many men would deem her worth the risk. Who, who are you? 
The man does not finish his sentence. The newcomer unsheathes a dagger and, with a casual swipe, slices his throat open. She did not even grace him with a look. She can see the tubes. I can smell the foul liquid. How vexing. I can barely perceive the woman passing by. So, very tired. Just need one close my eyes for a moment. Stay with me, young one. I blink my eyes and something straddles me. The woman is here. She rubs her thighs on my stained dress, making herself comfortable. Then she extends a hand and digs inside my chest. Shh, look at me. Follow my voice. I stare at the chocolate-brown eyes, twinkling with mischief. She's doing something, but I am too weak to act. Nothing hurts. It just feels like you're surrounded by fluffy pillows. Something pulls on my stomach, but I feel no pain. A moment later, the strange woman is inspecting a silver ball held in a blood-soaked hand. She whistles. Nice catch, darling. Is it? I frowned. Are you comfortable, yes? Am I? I guess I am. I feel like taking a nap, but something is holding me conscious. How peculiar. So, uh, did you know Jasper the Tracker? Who? Guess not, sweet cheeks. I'm talking about that mage who almost killed you. I assume it is he, seeing that the head is mostly gone. Nasty man. He had a habit of hunting monsters and people for sport, regardless of guilt. This time, he bit off more than he could chew. Pun intended. I see. <sighs> You're too quiet, my little honeypot. Let me help you. She takes out a small canteen from her jacket and empties some of the contents in my mouth. The burning sensation I had forgotten is simply washed away. She dabs the damp spot and with a clean tissue. I tentatively lick my lips. I'm still sluggish, but I can now talk. Good evening. The woman looks dumbfounded before exploding into laughter. <laughs> my little duckling, so precious. I am Namananta. You can call me Nami. Nami? So why are you here anyway? I assume that you are not tracking the tracker. Talking is tiring. I slightly turn my head to the broken chair of the corpse beside it. Oh, that's swine. You're the one who killed him, yes? Well done. I could not have entered this house otherwise. She leads forward. The distance between us grows intimate, and she licks her lips. I shudder. I know you don't want to stay with the house Lancaster bastards. You want in with us. One word to Kauko, and he will marry you. We could use a una teatra. Go, ma petite cherie. Now that my gut is free of bullets and I can feel my body struggle to heal itself, the torpor is receding a bit, replaced by pain and a renewed thirst. I still cannot do more than shake myself a little. Never again at the mercy of another. The smile falls from her face to be replaced by regret on the little bit of shame. I recognize her now that my mind is clearer. She was with the representative of Clan Ekon when I escaped the fortress. She stays silent for a while. We do not move. I am starting to drift. A hand pats my head softly. A sharp claws brush away my hair with a gentle touch, parting the strands without snagging them. The effect is so soothing that I shiver and relax. Shh, all right, little one. I am sorry. I forgot. Very well. I shall let you go with a little gift as an apology on my tactless offer. My eyes are closed, but suddenly I can smell something. It is fragrance of wet earth and spice, an exotic scent, something to dance and sing to. I wonder how it feels. Come on, bite. I feel the soft skin against my lips. The perfume grows hauntingly strong. I 
I'm so thirsty. This is not exactly what I need, but it will help. My fangs pierce her skin. This is so different from a human. There is no rush, no ecstasy of life. I barely get any energy, and whatever I obtain feels sluggish. No heartbeat drives vitality into my aching body. What I get instead is power. If life is the thing that perpetrates my damned existence, what I get now is the essence that lets me do impossible things. I can feel myself growing noticeably more powerful. I suppose that I am so weak now that every little bit counts. There was something similar with the mage. Drinking from magical creatures makes me stronger. I finally understand the reason why other spawns are so much more dangerous than me. My master feeds them the blood of powerful things, and possibly his own. Their quick growth must ravage their mind and turn them into a natural disaster that they are made to be. How dreadful. But Juan said that vampires grow in power with age, implying that the devourer and his spawns draw power from the things that they feed on, much more so than other bloodlines. I'm not quite sure that this is common knowledge. I am, however, certain that no one knows how significant that is. Here in Louisiana, and I fully intend to keep it that way. I'm afraid that some would cull me before I became a threat, if they ever found out. That is enough, little one, says the sultry voice. I obediently left the wound clean. This experience is far too intimate for my liking. I feel that Nami stole my first kiss, or whatever the vampiric equivalent is. Ah, I so love to walk on the edge, but enough of this, my chere. I shall recover Mr. Jasper here, and I'll be on my way, on batois. And Nami's departure, something snaps, and I immediately lose consciousness. No, please, I shall, please! I told you, sister, it won't help. A ghastly wind blows through the desiccated sugar canes, throwing ash and dust into the air. The sky is so darkened by smoke that I cannot tell the time. Please, I'm so thirsty, please. A shiller carries the only flask of cold water around. He drinks from it from time to time. I can almost feel it in the tip of my tongue, so tantalizingly close. It's all your fault, you know. If only you had died correctly, we could have had the closure. But even this you could not manage. A blast of air embers on my tattered dress. The red dots settle down on the smoke starts to rise. I can already feel the heat burning my skin. I struggle, but I am restrained. My arms are held up by chains attached to a wooden moss dug deep into the ground. The familiar log cabin taunts me as a safety, but it is so far away. I can barely see its charred walls. They still stand. Ashilla, you do not believe me. Very well. Try it yourself. My brother approaches. His wide shoulders and muscular body used to be a sight of comfort, but now it is a threat. I feel like he would gladly shatter bones and bruise flesh with strikes from his meaty hands. But he does not. Instead, he brings the canteen to my parched lips. Yes, at last. The cold liquid rushes past my mouth. Finally, it tastes like fresh mountain water. I gulp greedily. Yet, uh, nothing happens. What? I told you, I told you it would not work. Our plain and misery will sate you now. Your horror wearing my sister's skin. Have it then. Gorge yourself on a monster. Ashina takes the hunting knife and slowly places it against his jugular. Wait, Ashina, no! What are you doing? 
The knife slices down and the veritable geyser, her blood splashes all over me and the ground. He is going to die if I don't, uh, if, if I don't, um, I need it. I need it so much. I'm hurt and so, so very thirsty. Thirsty. Ah, ah, the pain. What? Where is my spite? Where is my minute of introspection? I cannot move. I crack open my eyes. I am attached to my bed with thick ropes that twist around me and my mattress. I'm still wearing the remnants of yesterday's dress under the layers of twine. It smells ripe. My face is coated with dry blood and it cracks as I move. This is amateur work. I can free myself in a few minutes and hunt someone to drink dry. I squirm and the pain redoubles. My stomach lances me so much that I could believe that I'd been shot once more. Ah... This is it. I must not have healed completely from yesterday's ordeal. If I had been alive, such a wound would have killed me within an hour. I would have gasped my last in a pool of my own blood and offal. There was some benefits to this cursed life, after all. I hear footsteps just as I manage to sever the first knot with a talon. The door opens to reveal Lady Moore. She looks just as majestic as always, scrunching her nose in displeasure. How I hate her and her misplaced arrogance. She would smell like entrails and stale blood too if she got her dainty hands dirty. Instead, operating herself in this barely civilized swamp like a peacock and letting others labor for her achievements. Hussy. Is that defiance I see in your face, fledgling? This is no time for confrontation. I will escape and much, much later. I'll wipe that expression from her face. No, mistress, I will not let arrogance destroy me. I realize yesterday that mortals are fortunate when it comes to pain. There is only so much damage a person can take before one's body gives up, unless they are under the care of a particularly talented torturer, I suppose. Vampires, on the other hand, can take so much abuse, enough to drive one insane. I may be stronger than yesterday, but I am still a sparrow to Lady Moore's eagle. I need much more time before I can even compare. I shall be patient. I must be patient. I will be feared like master, even if it takes me a thousand years. I will see that pretentious wench broken before me. Baduan has assured me that you made yourself useful. However, I now believe that you played him, you filthy little trollop. He does not know your kind as I do. Too used to dealing with mortals, I suppose. Now you'll tell me all the dealings you've had with Clan Ekon. What? I have no arrangements with Clan Ekon. Is that so? Yes, none whatsoever. Then how do you explain that Namandata was seen exiting the building we found you unconscious in? This was the first time I'd seen her since the fortress. I explained what happened yesterday, with the exception of my increased strength, such as it is. You said that you killed this Jasper man, alone and unarmed. I was not entirely unarmed. I used his throwing knives. She scoffed, her canine lips twisted in disdain, picking up mortal weapons like a beggar with no dignity. Now the story is suddenly more believable. And uh, whose fault is it that I ended up in harm's way, equipped with nothing but a shawl? Ah, this woman would not know intellectual honesty if it slapped her in the face like a rotten catfish. Although, she just implied that she cannot recognize lies from truth. 
This is a tremendous news. It means I can hide my little conspiracy from her. I still have to be careful, for she would not have survived this long without being crafty. Not with that attitude, at least. But to expect someone of your lineage to be honest, I must think me daft, girl. I assure you that there are no arrangements between Clan Ekon and myself. I refuse Nominata's proposal. Ha! I knew it. And what proposal would that be? I did not mean to say that, and my anger must be the best of me yet again. To marry Lord Cacao. <laughs> How it must have been tempting, you shameless harlot. Read him at the tip of a savage member. What stopped you? The perspective of only being his second wife. <sighs> it appears that Jimena was wrong. Vampires are racist, just not to each other's face. Indeed, it appears that I was mistaken to believe you crafty enough to make such an arrangement. You certainly possess some form of low cunning, however. It is not enough to successfully plot against me. I remain silent. I finally see the end of my torment. I just want this insufferable woman to take her leave so that I may hurt in peace. My betrayal is not to be borne, however, no matter how small. I'm quite certain that your adult brain came up with some scheme. I shall hear it of now. What? You have a plan to escape? You must have, and I will hear it when you are ready to share. But to worry, girl, I brought some light reading to entertain myself while we wait. You must understand that in my veins runs the blood of kings. Those who have been brought up since high spheres know the best tools to achieve intended results without ever having to study their hands. In this specific instance, the tool is patience, and so we shall wait. Lady Moore ignores my protest. She sits in my chair and my own desk and takes a book from a small bag, which she then proceeds to read. I shuffle. In discomfort, my stomach is still quite painful, if not much as before. My thirst, however... It starts from the chest at the height of my arm. It spreads up and down until it reaches my throat and tummy. It is an inch, a burn, a craving. There is nothing like it. No human experience can quite compare. When I was a child, I held a heavy plate for as long as I could. At first, it felt easy, then uncomfortable, then painful, until it finally became almost unbearable. If I held longer, my entire existence had to be limited to the task. The situation was somewhat similar. In the same way of being stung like a bee is similar to being stabbed by an enchanted silver dagger. After a few minutes, I would roll around and fight the bindings openly, the pain in my stomach forgotten. I could not help myself. After half an hour, I was hissing and grunting. Lady Moore had heavy chains brought up and smirking Charlotte and I was held up in a cocoon. After that, I lasted only a few more pages before I began to beg. Anything I want, yes, yes, please, please, please. Your arrangements with Clan Ekon, I'll hear them now. There are no arrangements, you... But you have a place to escape, I... Well, yes, yes, damn it, I do I have a plan. And what is this plan of yours? I have money put away. I will take it and go. There was barely enough sanity in me to throw away my most desperate plan. I was still use it as bait, as a sacrifice. You stole it from us. No, mistress, I took it from your foes, the people in the warehouse, the swordfish gang, the assaulters and the dodgers. I took their money. <laughs> oh, a war prize. Oh, this is too precious. Very well, you might be slightly more cunning than I gave you credit for. 
but I must ask, how did you expect to survive the following manhunt? Well, there is enough money to take a night coach. I would run afterwards. I was referring to the priest, sir. You bare-brained bumpkin. I, uh, yes, I was going to cut off my arm. Oh, oh, that's just getting better and better. Why should I thank you for tonight's entertainment, my dear? I have paid fortunes and laughed less. Yes, seriously, seriously, intended to mutilate yourself. I, uh, I know that we can regrow limbs. That is technically correct and also completely irrelevant, as expected of you. You simply fail to understand the reality of your existence. You are no true spawn of the devourer, mad with power and thirst. You are just a lost fledgling abandoned by her sire who thinks herself tough enough to do what it takes to escape. You are not, and since I am a benevolent mistress, I will educate you in this instant. She walks up to me and takes a wicked dagger from the recesses of her robe. The weapon is terrifying. It is black as obsidian and strangely curved. I have never seen such a thing before, yet one look at it is enough to know that it was designed to slay humans. She raises it, and I flinch, but she just feeds my hands and then removes the shackles. The rest of my body remains trapped. Well, I had almost forgotten your stench. I only have myself to blame. In any case, take it. She gives me the dagger hilt first, and I grab it before thinking. I could just cut the rest of the rope and get some blood. Cut off your own arm here and now, and I shall let you drink someone dry. Then I'll give you your freedom. What? Should you successfully cut off your arm, you can leave. This is my blade. It can cut through metal. Even an untrained mortal could decapitate a foe with two strikes using it. So slicing through an arm is no small matter. Doubt assails my mind through the numbing thirst. Could this really be that easy? There are no traps. Go on, try it. I extend my left arm and brandish the blade as I realize the issue. I am terrified of pain. I've suffered a lot in the past few months, and one would think that I would make use to it. It does not. I do not want to hurt, and I do not want to bleed. But I must try. I have to. This is the best shot at freedom. I turn my eyes towards the master vampire at my side. She has a patient and slightly condescending look on her face. She seems so certain that it is impossible for me. I will show her. I take a deep breath, grit my teeth, and move to strike with all the speed and strength I can muster. I will hack and slice before my brain can register what I have done. My hand falls and begins to quake. Oh, my God. I can't move, can't think, hurts. Blade grates against bone, buried deep. I keep screaming and holding my arm with the knife still in it for some time. The agony washes my mind free of anything but a blinding pain itself. The world turns white. There is only suffering. Eventually, another voice pushes through the dry sobs. Well, you managed to reach the bone. Here, let me help a bit. The hand pushes the blade down in a resounding crack, and I lose consciousness for a few moments. When I come to, the knife is halfway through my arm, blood slowly seeping and stained sheets. The only sound are my whimpers. You're halfway there, though arguably this was the easy half. Well, will you continue? Take your time. Too much pain, too much pain, and too thirsty. I should continue, but I simply can't. It hurts too much. I'm not a hero out of a story who can just ignore pain and adversity. I am not strong enough. I don't want to do it. I don't want to feel this torment. 
I will have to be the cadders. I am only lucky that Lady Moore fortified a full interrogation in favor of humiliation. It seems then being looked down upon remains my greatest asset. For now, I'll feel sorry about myself, but I am too much agony for even that. Should I take it out? I nod. Yes, God, please, just make it stop. Make everything stop. I feel like crying, but I will not let go of the shreds of dignity that I am still clinging to. Lady Moore removes the knife, and to her credit, she does it cleanly. The wound does not heal, and I vainly hold the mangled arm to prevent more of my precious liquid from flowing away. So thirsty, I can't take it anymore. She drags me to the cattle pens, and I feed on two victims, one after the other. Something changed. I notice that the sky outside of my mind refuge has turned dark. I should perhaps be worried, yet how could a vampire find daylight seizing? This is no more than I deserve. After we're done, Lady Moore drags me back inside and throws me on the carpet. I can hear a snicker from Harold, who watches me from the stairs. Those jackals are ever eager to witness someone else's humiliation. My devoted medicine tried to turn you into an acceptable courtier. However, you prefer to be with the dregs. Now, unless you want to help with the gauntlet, you will work on a position that suits you better. More specifically, on your back. Gauntlet, I croak. I beg your pardon, gauntlet, I repeat. More conviction. Whatever it is, I will still be better than the fate that she has in mind right now. Lady Moore is angered by my refusal. I see no trace of it. Very well. The gauntlet it is. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this issue of the first 40k. I hope that you enjoyed. Please don't forget to check out the author's page, linked down below. And if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so down below. I will see you all in the next video, and until then, I hope that you have a wonderful one. Cheers.